And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be on this rotating globe, just spinning around. Welcome to the other side of midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when tonight, or this morning, we're going to talk to you about several major breakthroughs, all occurring simultaneously overlapping that could, in fact, give hope to humanity itself. Now, I know that kind of sounds maybe a tad pretentious, but you know that my position and the position of most of the regular participants in this show, our our family, our faculty, is that the only reason we're doing, excuse me, this stuff with space is because it's the only thing big enough to change what's going on on planet Earth tonight. The human race is tearing itself apart. It is in, in incremental increases destroying future hopes for millions of people. And the only way that I have perceived that this could change would be, and this goes back now decades, you know, 40, 50 years, would be if we could confirm that which has been the most jealously guarded secret in the modern era of humanity, which is that the human race is not all by its lonesome on this little spit of dust, this planet, but is part of a much, much, much larger galactic family with all those implications, including a whole bunch of strangers, i.e. aliens, that populate a galaxy which is teeming with life. And the only reason that this is not accepted, you know, policy and understanding on the part of most of the planet tonight is that there has been an assiduous, consistent, dogged, no-holds-barred determination on the part of a minority who just happened to run the planet, to keep this knowledge, this foundation, this paradigm-changing reality from everybody else. And it's now beginning all around the edges and sometimes much closer to the center than the the so-called deep state would, would, would prefer. It's breaking apart. There are signs of spring buds all over. There's evidence of real astonishing truths about to be revealed and then confirmed. And this ranges the gamut from UFOs to other dimensional entities to a extraordinary physics, which could be the key to not only solving the world's most horrible problems, but in fact, liberating humankind with simple practical commercial applications, which again, as part of the big picture, have been kept from us. So yes, tonight we are destroying the world through greenhouse gases, et cetera, et cetera, and the threat of thermonuclear war. Let's not forget that. So into this maelstrom of darkness, there are bright little beacons which are now springing up the U.S. government suddenly sanctioning official offices, both in the military and in the civilian space realm, 
to look into the idea seriously with science, with with citizen science, with networks, with protocols, with AI, the fact that we are not alone. And there are increasing numbers of breakthroughs, which are all leading in the same direction. The trend curves are in the same direction. The only very serious question tonight, looking at what's going on in Ukraine and is in, in, in Gaza, is are we going to have enough runway to land this plane before other things take over and we basically cannot make a safe and soft landing? That's part of why we're going to talk about some real intertwined breakthroughs tonight that on the surface may look very, very separate, very disparate, very unconnected. What I'm hoping we can do tonight in our conversation with people who have new data, people who will present opinions, people who will have a background of expertise to comment on the implications of what we're unfolding, I'm hoping as part of tonight's conversation, you will come away with an understanding that unless we make real breakthroughs on this front, unless we open the closed box, the illusion, and Earth's societies are all alone, things are not going to change. Certainly, they're not probable, probably going to change in time. And that's the key message of tonight. There is a clock ticking. There is a fuse burning. There is an apprehension that things cannot go on much longer the way they are currently going on now. So into this backdrop, I want to introduce all our new listeners, and we have quite a few. Uh, one of my guests a few weeks ago, Matthew Bailey, <clears throat> our AI expert, <clears throat> excuse me, he has his own network. And we reran his show several times. He thought apparently of all the interviews he's done, and he's done a lot, uh, that ours was right up there. So he asked permission to uh, broadcast it over his network. And of course, as I'd hoped happened, you know, the curious people have come over from his network to our network. And so tonight we have a whole bunch of new listeners. And I want to thank every one of you. I promise you. You will not leave tonight or this morning disappointed. This, what we're talking about tonight, can potentially change the world for the better. It's not enough just to change the world. You've got to change it in the right direction. You've know, got to have the right sign in, in, the, in the equation. Okay. Uh, for those of you who are new, you want to go to um, something we have on our website, uh, the other side of midnight.com. That's where you should be. Click on tonight's banner, which says, did Apollo 12 find another Stonehenge on the moon? Part three. That will take you to the guest page. Right under the guest page, you will see in yellow letters to listen to the show. And then it says guest page. And then it says fast links to items. This is our section of the show website, which we call radio with pictures, where we post our guests, experts, whoever, Post interesting reference material <clears throat> that you can either look at during the show or you can look at later or when you join Club 19.5, you can look at to your heart's content. You want to click on my name where it says fast links to items. That takes you to my section tonight of radio with pictures. 
And we're going to lead again tonight with the story that has been leading for something like six weeks now, which is the horrible Hamas assault on the state of Israel on killing 1,400 people, give or take, in a murderous blitzkrieg of terror against civilians, not the military, civilians, people just living on kibbutz there by the border with Gaza. And what has happened as a result, which has been this incredible, all-out, relentless mass bombardment of Gaza to where something like 11,000 people have died. And even if you think that every one of them deserved it, the numbers prove you wrong because there's something like 2.2 million people in Gaza. Admittedly, Hamas contains about 30,000 fighters. Let's say 50,000 just to, you know, inflate the numbers. That means that out of the 11,000 people, how many percent, one and a half percent maybe, have been Hamas fighters? The rest are all civilians and half of those our children. This is a global morality catastrophe. Never in the history of world warfare since World War II has civilized society sanctioned the mass civilian bombings that were conducted by this nation, by the United States, on the side of right in World War II of Japan and, of course, Germany. But we have grown up since then. There are rules of warfare. There are, there are treaties that have been signed. There are documents and covenants which have been agreed to in writing in front of, of institutions like the World Court. No longer do we approve of civilized society responding against an act of terror by simply trying to obliterate, to exterminate the population from which the terror has come particularly when millions of people are held in chattel, in slavery, by this relative handful of, of Hamas fighters known as, uh, well, known by the name Hamas. So nothing on this front appears to be changing. The story I have up there tonight is that we are considering, the U.S. is considering a tactical military response to try to get these 200-plus hostages that were taken on the uh, 7th of October. And unlike other situations where we knew where hostages were, I'm thinking of the Iran crisis back in the uh, uh, 1970s, with Jimmy Carter as president, who by the way is in hospice tonight and is um, on the edge of the doorway. It wasn't since the Carter administration that we've tried to rescue, and that did not turn out well. You know, desert, what was it, Desert One, the name of the code name of the rescue operation did not turn out well. And all of those hostages were kept in one place in the U.S. Embassy, <clears throat> where we knew where they were and why there was serious efforts to mount a, a, a rescue uh, operation. Currently, Israel and the United States and every other nation sharing this high-level intelligence in NATO and in the Western Alliance, they have no idea where these hostages are. They've been dispersed. Uh, we've heard reports over the last couple of days that uh, two of them were found in uh, buildings on the grounds of the uh, largest hospital there in northern Gaza. But no one, uh, except I think for one a few weeks ago, 
has been found and rescued alive. Uh, the others, I think three or four, have been exchanged per negotiation. And there is developments in, in the realm of negotiation for somewhere between 100 and 200 of the remaining hostages. But this story coming out and saying that we're considering separate tactical military plans to simply go get them, I'm not sure that's going to encourage the negotiations in a very uh, uh, rapid or enlightened fashion. Uh, who knows? Was that a leak? Is that? I mean, there's so many cross currents swirling around this, and it's all pointless because, again, measured against the standard of what's inside this planet, what's in the solar system, what's in the galaxy, what's going on out there in terms of civilized, extraordinarily advanced societies of which we tonight have no formal part. That knowledge would reveal in an instant that we, we meaning Jews and Arabs and Muslims and whites and Hottentots and Japanese and Native, everybody on this planet shares so much more in common against the unknown and the fact, and we have to face this very for, you know, for, for squarely, that maybe some of those folks out there are not very nice and maybe they have designs and intentions on the earth. And that gets into an extraordinary convoluted, you know, discussion, which of course we're not going to have time to do tonight, but it's against that backdrop, particularly if in the model, some of these folks, these ET folks, are in fact family. And you know where the worst fights on Earth seem to occur between families. Maybe, just maybe, it's not all light and airy, fairy goodness forever in terms of finally joining the galactic community. You know, we, we, we should keep all our options on the table. But that does not mean we should not move forward with revealing the truth because the truth in this sense will really make us free and give every human being the opportunity to reassess their relationship with their fellow humans and with or against the unknown. In that vein, there were two major developments uh, in the last week. One took place uh, uh, yesterday morning, and the other took place, you know, a few days ago. One is very, very well known and is being kind of dismissed tonight with very cheap and misleading headlines as a failure, whereas the other is so unknown that I had to really dig for a backstory on why it's so important and why it deserves to be part of our conversation vis-a-vis what we found on the moon tonight. And they are my items number two and three of Richard's items in Radio with Pictures on the guest page. So item number two, cracker dawn this morning, six o'clock, 6.03 here, and two hours later further east, the Starship launch took place under SpaceX Aegis, Elon Musk's uh, space company from Boca Chica, Texas. And unlike the um, headlines, it didn't fail. It, it succeeded brilliantly just at the end of the 
period where the uh, agency, SpaceX, was trying to gather data, that is, as the Starship looped around the Earth and then re-entered over Hawaii, something happened and two commanded self-destructs were sent or were inculcated by the onboard computer software and both vehicles, the first and the second stage of the Starship, after launch, about seven, seven and a half minutes after launch, were destroyed. But not before every mission parameter, every goal, save for the reentry, was achieved. The most important of which, admitted in the literature, which um, SpaceX had published, you know, weeks ago, before this launch attempt uh, this morning, was that they would they would actually undertake a procedure for staging, that is, transferring momentum from the first stage booster to the second stage payload in a seamless fashion, what's called a hot staging technique, where instead of shutting down the engines on the first stage, then disconnecting the two stages and having the engines on the second stage light up and move the... uh, spacecraft away from the first stage, which is now, of course, falling back to Earth, they would keep the engines burning on the first stage while they ignited the engine, reducing momentum during the stage transfer. You might say, well, why would they complicate a mission doing something that has almost never, ever been done uh, in the history of spaceflight and doing it in the process of testing two ultimately recoverable vehicles. And the reason is that when this is all worked out, the benefit is that you get to take about 10% more payload to orbit than if you do the staging in the normal conventional manner. So that test this morning, that the two stages you know, separated in a hot staging technique worked brilliantly. The first stage backed away, tumbled, was orienting itself for its return to Earth. They were going to do a soft landing on the surface of the Gulf of Mexico and then allow the thing just to sink. The Starship, the payload, the second stage of the of the test, was to almost, not quite, but almost go into orbit to where it became a fractional orbital system, an FOS, meaning it would coast just below orbital velocity all basically around the world and then re-enter about 200 miles north of Hawaii, which is almost, you know, 180 degrees or 360 degrees from where it, you know, left, which is Texas. And this would be a a, a test of the navigation system, the re-entry tiles, Um, without going into orbit, where if there were problems, let's say that it blew up, all right? If you blow up when you're in orbit, it takes a long time, relatively speaking, for the pieces to come down, and they become a hazardous uh, import to other satellites in low Earth orbit. Whereas if you create a FOS situation, fractional orbiting system, then you know that even if you have an explosion, the pieces are going to come back to Earth and re-enter and probably sink in some ocean and thereby not clutter up low Earth orbit 
in other words, being environmentally friendly. So that's the test profile that was designed by Musk and his company, the brilliant geniuses there at SpaceX. And it all worked except for the final part of reentry because about a minute before the engines were supposed to, you know, be um, throttled down on the second stage and then it coast around the world, uh, it blew up. And it blew up because something told its onboard self-destruct safety system to blow up. What's kind of weird and what has not been covered by any of the rather hysterical and very wrong headlines, this mission did not fail. It succeeded, and then both vehicles was destroyed slightly earlier than they had been planned to be destroyed by dunking them in the ocean. The data that SpaceX learned through all the successes of getting to where they got in this, in this mission so outweigh the negatives of not succeeding on the reentry, because, of course, that can happen on the next third try. And at the rate at which Musk builds hardware, depending upon the bureaucracy of federal regulations and permission by the FAA to do a third launch, we could be seeing a third launch of Starship and the super heavy booster by Christmas, maybe between Christmas and New Year's. That's technically feasible because the launch pad, which had to be radically redesigned and new things installed to keep it from, uh, you know, basically, you know, being destroyed by the launch forces of the rocket, which happened on the first test back in April, uh, survived unscathed. In fact, there was less damage to the um, Starship launch pad in Texas than there was to the Cape Canaveral launch pad after the launch of Artemis 1. No elevator doors were blown, you know, cockeyed. No, you know, major hardware was scoured off the launch decks. No wiring had to be replaced. No extensive, you know, change of structure. Um, it basically survived unscathed, which is a huge step forward because that meant that there was no environmental degradation and thereby there was no uh, backlash against uh, the environment, fish and wildlife, which had to accede to the... Uh, limits put on Musk after the first disastrous uh, test when everything went uh, cattywampus. So overall, this was a stunning step forward in developing a democratized private enterprise way of sending spacecraft and civilians to the moon, which will usher in when these untrammeled, uncensored eyes on their Twitter accounts, i.e. X, which also was owned by Musk, tweet out all around the world, good God, there are ruins all over the moon. That became a huge, major step closer tonight than it was this morning. Regardless of the stupid, frankly, I believe, uh, propagandish headlines, which are designed to keep us in prison, to keep us from ever knowing that there's others folks out there, and certainly knowing anything about our heritage, which is on the moon. Closest outpost of stunning real human history when we did astonishing godlike things is right next door on the moon. And somebody does not want us to know this, 
So one of the possibilities, and we're going to know in the next uh, you know few days, if not hours, was the Starship mission, in fact, sabotaged? How could that have happened? Suppose some agency outside of SpaceX or NASA managed to broadcast on the uh, destruct system radio frequencies that are used as a backup from the ground to destroy the vehicle if it wanders off course and is going to land in the middle of Houston. What if that set of frequencies and codes was taken over by, oh, what's that's just, you know, well, eh, the Chinese? Maybe. See, I don't go there automatically because I think the Chinese are in the same boat we are. Somebody bigger than both of us does not want us to verify what's out there. And that model we've developed on other shows. Or it could have been, you know, an X factor, pun intended. The fact is that will all come out with analysis of the telemetry. But there are things about the mission which at least raise the possibility that this is one investigation that should be explored, pursued, even in areas where you would not, at first blush, think you want to go, which is sabotage. Wouldn't be the first time. And look what's riding on it. Now, the other mission, which you've heard nothing about, is in my item number three. It's been planned for a couple of years. Uh, It's been placed into orbit by a private enterprise space company called Rogue uh, Space Systems, I believe. Very, very apt title, Rogue, meaning they're mavericks, meaning they're willing to go off the reservation. And there's another company, and you can find all this out by clicking on item number three, controversial quantum space drive in orbital test, others to follow. Because on November 11th, after two years in preparation, with the aegis of DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, the kind of far out blue sky, crazy scientists attached to the DOD, They commissioned a study five years ago of a professor claiming to have basically a hyperdimensional theory, don't you love this, out of which a very practical set of technologies could in fact be designed, produced, and tested. And one of these technologies, actually two, are two different variants of a reactionless space drive using no fuel, no ions, no no propellant of any kind, just hooking into hyperspace, again in our model, and using it to basically move from point A to point B in three-dimensional reality. And that spacecraft, a CubeSat measuring the size maybe of a you know shoebox with solar panels, is in orbit around the Earth tonight and has two different, slightly different versions of this incredibly revolutionary hyper-dimensional space drive waiting to be tested in the next few days. Now, here's where things can get really, really interesting. If those tests, which are upcoming, 
turn out to be successful, this spacecraft will raise its orbit. Uh, it's orbiting about halfway between Earth and the altitude of the, of the space station at the moment. It will raise its orbit by something like 60 miles. There is no natural known force, including outgassing, solar wind, atmospheric inflation, magnetic fields, gamma rays, whatever. There's nothing if that spacecraft, when they flip the switch and turn on the drives and it changes orbit by 60 vertical miles, there's nothing that can account for such a stunning, radical, paradigm-shattering test than a real hyper-dimensional space drive. Now, you couple that breakthrough, which is about to happen in a few hours or a few days, with what we saw from Musk this morning, you put those two technologies together and you have a human race finally, if all this works, with the ability to send human spacecraft to the stars in the first 20 years of the 21st century. And on that note, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight here for this Saturday evening, Sunday morning on uh, 
November 18th. The uh, the other major story that I want to uh, briefly go through before we get into our panel and our guests uh, is uh, the death of Frank Borman in the last few days. Frank Borman kind of presaged what we're talking about tonight because he led as a uh, NASA astronaut in 1968 in December across Christmas of 1968. He led us through a Cree Apollo astronauts, uh, Jim Lovell and um, uh, Fred Fred Hayes, I believe. Uh, no, I'm sorry. It was it was. Um, oh, I can't remember the third astronaut. It'll come to me. Anyway, it was historic because it was the mission which was supposed to not go anywhere near the moon. It was supposed to basically stay uh, in Earth orbit after the successful mission of Apollo 7, which had come years after the catastrophic fire on the pad in 1967, um, which had destroyed the uh, Apollo spacecraft in test and had killed uh, three astronauts, Chafee, White, and um, uh, Grissom. So this last week or so, Frank Borman at 95, uh, died, but he will be forever remembered as the guy who led this increpid crew of three astronauts to orbit the moon across Christmas of 1968, where they all read from Genesis. And of course, we now know that there's a lot more to Genesis per Stan Tennant's work than has been even imagined by anybody before. And we're going to weave these two threads of the larger story together in the coming weeks as you will as you will see but anyway i wanted to give an homage to frank borman who uh, led this increpid crew against some serious biomedical problems the technology worked fine but uh, borman himself apparently got incredibly space sick and uh, you never would have known it i was that was my first stint at cbs as science advisor cronkite and of course i was riveted by the mission and following you know, millisecond to millisecond and delivering Cronkite all kinds of materials. And it was Borman who led the crew and he was the one who was ill and they were very good at keeping secrets even back in those days. So we did not know until after the mission had returned. Mission was so historic at so many different levels. In fact, we probably should spend a night talking about the amazing heads up that the Apollo 8 mission gave us back when we were so damn dumb we didn't know what we should be looking for. Anyway, um, our guest tonight, I'm looking at my list here, uh, will be joined tonight by Maria Wheatley, who of course is our resident um, archeologist, dowser, uh, expert on ancient um, monuments, sacred uh, hyperdimensional monuments scattered all over the earth, starting with the uh, epic granddaddy of them all, Stonehenge, there in southern England. She's with us. Um, Greg Ahrens, my friend and colleague who has been working with me for years on several projects, uh, Air Force veteran. I gave him the task once we had figured out that we were dealing with a real lunar Stonehenge, and we'll get into how we know all that in a few minutes. Um, I gave him the task of finding out where the damn thing was pointed. Because, well, we'll get into the details of that when we when we get into those details. We've got Keith Morgan with us, of course. We've got Kinthea. And um, 
Ron Gerbrun, our resident generalist, is with us, and, and he had some really good questions. We had some conversations off the air earlier in the week, and I said, save it, save it for the show, because, you know, that's one of his major roles is to think things and ask things that nobody else thinks of, and uh, he's not going to disappoint. So let me give a little background to all you new listeners who have come over from uh, Matthew Bailey's net. Uh, we did a show with Matthew uh, a few weeks ago, and the response was so extraordinary that we ran it a couple of times, and he requested that we be able to run it, allow him to run it on his net. So we have a lot of uh, Bailey fans. Why? Why is that important? Because AI, which is what you guys kind of hang out looking at, and what we're talking about, the verification of real intelligent uh, beings other than us hovering around the Earth, visiting the Earth, i.e. UAP, spacecraft, UFOs, or having left monuments, architecture, in our own backyard, all over the solar system. My opinion now is basically political as opposed to scientific, is that NASA is going to pitch the ball on whether this is a crackpot theory or it's reality to AI. And AI, when it comes up with ruins all over the solar system, is going to be blamed <clears throat> or credited with, oh my God, look at this amazing technology which saw what mere humans were not able to see for 50 years. And politically, my prediction is that most people will buy it. They will be satisfied. And uh, only a few people will care about the real history and the fact that there were a group of us lonely pioneers crying in the wilderness, pointing at the ruins, decades before an AI basically said, they're real. Anyway, with that as prelude, let's go to my uh, fifth item tonight, which is a misspelled of 12 lunar rover tracks. We, we can take out one, one P. Uh, this is an overview taken from LRO, which is NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which put into orbit back in uh, 2009, still going strong. Uh, some years ago, uh, after taking initial images of the Apollo landing sites, which of course everybody you know, was wondering, well, if NASA didn't land on the moon, how could they put a spacecraft in lunar orbit and take pictures of, of the flags on the descent stage of the lunar module and footprints and experiments and all that, other than by faking it? So a few weeks ago, as a counterpart to the image in, in number, number five, the Indian space program, the Chandrayaan-2 lunar orbiter, looked down from lunar orbit, this is several years ago as a matter of fact, and took pictures of all the Apollo landing sites. Now you gotta understand, the cornerstone of US government policy, expertise, founding documents, constitution, Etc. It all comes down to w one phrase, secret sauce, which is checks and balances, checks and balances. So the wisdom, the fake news out there is that NASA never went near the moon, that the moon landings were done on some soundstage, you know, uh, in Arizona or Nevada. I encountered that bizarre, weird lie decades ago when I was literally covering the Apollo moon missions for CBS News, and we all moved from JPL, uh, I'm sorry, from, from Downey, the uh, prime contractor for Apollo 
up to JPL to cover the uh, Mars flybys of Mariner 6 and 7 occurring in the same week as the Apollo 11 landing. And I found there that NASA was squiring around a guy. Uh, nobody knew him. He was just a guy. But he got this kind of tender, loving treatment from the NASA personnel. And he was handing out little flyers saying, basically, as Apollo 11 was falling home, we never did this. It's all being done on a soundstage. And so NASA itself gave birth during that news coverage to the lie we never went to the moon. All documentable in uh, uh, my, my book, uh, uh, Dark Mission. So against that, what's the evidence that we, in fact, did go to the moon? Well, as long as you've got the um, uh, person who's indicted for the crime, i.e. NASA, taking the pictures claiming that it's not, you know, indictable because it didn't do the crime, it really did land on the moon, no one's going to believe you. We live in the era now, it was bad years ago, it's horrible now. Nobody believes anybody about anything, mainly because they don't have a process for figuring out what's real and, and what's not. We're going to get to our How Do We Know What We Know show at some point. You know, I'm, I'm working on the right guy. Anyway, into this unending paradox, this how do you determine whether NASA is telling you the truth when they, in fact, on a whole bunch of other stuff, have demonstrably lied, not just for decades, but for 50 years, half a century since they were born, they've been lying. I mean, I couldn't imagine back when I was with Cronkite and you know, encountering NASA at a high level for the first time, why all the press had this, uh, you know, kind of weird side of the mouth uh, reference to the NASA acronym, N-A-S-A, as standing for never a straight answer. Even then, and that wasn't about the good stuff, it was about the, the dumb stuff. So in this light, modern claims by NASA, oh, look, we got pictures of all the stuff we took to the moon, are going to go over like the proverbial lead balloon. Into this controversy comes the Indian space program. A completely separate government, a completely separate form of government, because uh, Modi is a dictator, a completely separate space program, completely separate from, among other things, NASA. All right? They have funded their own missions to the moon. Hell, they've now landed unmanned spacecraft near the South Pole of the moon. If any checks and balances exist in the global space program, it's the Indian Chandrayaan-2 spacecraft looking down as it flew over the various Apollo landing sites and photographing hardware and footprints and flags and experiments. And at the Apollo 12 site, a lunar Stonehenge. So if you look at my item number five, that's the kind of overview. That's the surveyor crater about 650 feet across in which uh, um, Surveyor 3 landed back in uh, 1967. And then the intrepid uh, lunar module of Apollo 12 landed on the rim commanded by Pete Conrad. Uh, and the lunar module pilot was our familiar favorite painter, Alan Bean, landed on the rim, 
walked around, took samples, took lots and lots of pictures, visited a surveyor, clipped off samples, and then went back to the spacecraft, took off, and came home. Never once, according to any official record, realizing that about halfway between the position of the lunar module and that crater on the right in the, in the big crater called Block, about halfway between, there is this stunning circle. Look at uh, item number six, which looks for all the world like an aligned stellar and or solar uh, observatory like Stonehenge, which takes us to item number seven. Item number seven is a comparison. The image on the left is from uh, uh, Lunar Orbiter. No, I'm sorry. It's from, it's from yeah, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, um, taken at a <clears throat> particular time of day where the circle, except for one large object, does not really show up. It does if you really enhance it and zoom in. But on the right-hand side of this comparative diagram, you can see a blueprint of the famed Astrodome. I did not pick the Astrodome by accident. You know, astral lunar, astral football, Astrodome. Now, why I did this is because if you look at the surveyor crater there on the left, and you look at the Astrodome on the right, the Astrodome is 760, no, 720 feet in diameter. Surveyor crater is about 650. Count for the outside edges where the ground appears to be disturbed. They're about the same size, same scale. So the Apollo 12 astronauts were wandering around in an object on the lunar surface about the size of the Astrodome. And in that <clears throat> object on the ground, in that feature, they did not according to the footprints, find anything interesting they weren't supposed to find. Now, if you look carefully at my uh, item number seven, you'll notice with this lighting and this scale, the surveyor crater, which is the depression in the middle of the left-hand side of the frame, it's not round. It isn't a crater. It's a square tilted to the left by about 40, 45 degrees, maybe 30 and the points of the square <clears throat> are pointed directly up and down, or east and west, give or take, like they were aligned with the north rotational axis of the moon. Our model for what we're seeing is that, in fact, this is not an impact crater. This is the buried foundations of a sunken building, where the building itself is gone, the foundations underneath have collapsed and caused this very large stadium-sized depression oriented about 90 degrees to the current uh, orientation of, of uh, lunar features in the vicinity there in what's called Surveyor Crater on the moon. Okay, let's go to number eight. This now is an enlargement of the uh, Chandrayaan-2 image um, over which have been superimposed on the left a surface image taken by the astronauts of what we call the lunar time capsule, which is the object in the upper right corner of the of the frame with the red arrow pointing toward it. And then you got all those green lines. 
Well, if you look at the lines and, and the objects that they pass over, you can see that they mark out the alignment of four or five separate objects lined up aimed toward the lunar horizon. Even the uh, object aimed uh, across the center of the circle, which is there where the green lines and the red line cross over that white object with the long shadow, are aimed toward the biggest other thing on the landscape, which is that object in the northeast or to the upper right with the very weird shadow. All right, getting out of that, you want to now go to item number nine. Uh, Ruggiero, our friend Ruggiero Kalo, who's going to join us in the second hour, took my enhancements object, the so-called time capsule. <clears throat> he traced out its actual uh, geometry, which you can see there in the uh, sketch on the right, and it turns out to be a figure with one, two, three, four, five, six sides, two, I'm sorry, four equal to each other, and two longer ones in an extraordinarily symmetric configuration, which when then you look at number 10, which is the same sketch and geometry of the mystery object on the left, and on the right, this is a photograph close up taken on the surface by Alan Bean. We know the frame number, we know the magazine he used, and it, it's obviously a building. And it looks geometrically identical with short sides and long sides to what we see in the overhead. It's the first absolutely unequivocal building, I would say, we have discovered as part of a larger story or a larger architecture on, get out of that, and go to number 11. This is a photograph, and the number is right there in the, uh, in the caption, AS-12-49-7224. The AS-12 is Apollo Saturn 12. 49 is the magazine, the film magazine. 7224 is the frame number, the, the photograph number. You click on that, it looks like you're looking at a really interesting high-res image of a crater on the moon with uh, kind of weird stuff in the sky. Get out of that. That's the full frame. Go to number 12. This is now a close-up. Along the horizon and in the sky, there are decidedly non-natural-looking features. So then you get out of that, and you go into my number 13. This is now a close-up of a few of those features on the horizon. And they do not look like rocks. They are symmetrical. They look like structures. They look like architecture. They look like artificial, but they don't look like rocks or boulders. And that sky, well, of course, that's the brightened scattering of the dome on the near side of the moon, which stretches all over the moon and which Alan Bean himself, although he didn't know what he was consciously looking at when he was asked to describe in a story in Newsweek what the skies over the moon, the pitch black vacuum dark skies that are supposed to exist over the moon look like, he said, wait for it, a pair of black patent leather shoes. And what do black patent leather shoes look like? They have glistening specular highlights, reflections, 
just like the stuff in the sky over the Apollo 12 site on the moon. And then that brings us to number 14, which I'm going to wait for, because what I want to do is introduce the problem and the potential guy with some provocative solutions and a huge controversy. His name is Greg Ahrens, as I said, former Air Force veteran, engineer. I tasked with using the existing uh, programs that are available on the web to look at the stellar alignments because my model, going back to item number eight and nine and 10, is that the reason you can draw a straight line across the center of the circle to this larger object sitting at the edge of the frame of number eight is because it was some kind of repository, time capsule, that was designed to be seen against a backdrop of stars or celestial objects rising over the moon at that point on the horizon, 63 degrees, give or take, from the north, when this Stonehenge on the moon and that alignment were created and built. And I was hoping that he would be able, with the modern forensics of planetarium software, anchored in the latest software that governs how NASA flies all its missions to the moon and all over the rest of the solar system. You can't get more official and more credible than that. By reeling the clock back in the computer to the putative 100,000 years that the um, labeling says the program is now capable of simulating, we could determine from that celestial alignment what that alignment was aimed at and when that thing that it was aimed at was rising over that northeast horizon of the moon and it would tell us when and that might, as uh, Paul Harvey used to say, give us the rest of the story. So, Mr. Ahrens, come on down and explain to our good folks, and we'll pick it up after the top of the hour break, exactly what you tried to do, what you found in all of its complexities, and where we should probably go from here. Oh. There you are. Unmuting always helps. Okay. You know that's going to be on everybody's tombstone? Right. He I forgot or, to unmute. He or free, she forgot to unmute. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I clicked it and then and then I started and then you heard you spoke up and said, "Oh, hello." And I accidentally clicked it again and muted it. But anyway, I, I'm on now. Okay, we're uh we're close to the top of the hour. Yeah, so just tease. Mercilessly tease everybody. Mercifully. Yes. Uh okay, well, yeah, when I first saw the uh the picture of the Stone circle, or well, we don't know uh, we it's don't, stone. We don't know it's right. stone. They right. are objects in a circle, and on the, on, on the best images that I can I can extract from from Bean's surface photography, they look geometric. They look like they were sculpted, or they're pieces of machinery, or they may even have things on them, like like uh, you know artwork. But we're at right. the edge of knowing, so. We, Let's just talk about them as objects. They're not stones. Okay, so but I see this I see this circle of of white objects with a, one in the middle and the rest of them pretty much in a circle. 
And I, you know, I've seen work on Stonehenge and other cir- circles on the Earth, and you know, there's this. this some of them are theorized to be, uh, like you said, observatories or showing the direction to where different stars rise or set, or where the sun rises or sets, and uh, eclipses or, or uh, equinoxes or whatever. Well, let me, so, let me hang so, on. Let, let me stop you there. Um, I found personally when I first went with NASA <clears throat> and then went out to Chaco Canyon, which is an ancient Native American site. Uh, on the Sazi site here in New Mexico, there are there are alignments on the surface at the canyon, showing stars and lunar and solar rising. So this is not just limited to cultures in Europe. It turns out cultures all over the world built sight lines, like like a huge rifle, where you have a foresight and a backsight, and they use right. stones to mark that angle, and it was designed to flag something important in the sky for you know, kind of complementary reasons um, of, of time and symbology and worship and all that. But this is a precedent well established in all cultures on Earth. And so when, when I found the circle, like you, I said, oh my God, it's got to be an alignment thing, like a calendar or a clock, to tell us when it was done. Right, right, yeah. And like, like you've had that guest on uh, up in... Massachusetts or someplace where there was a or New Hampshire. Yeah, Dennis Stone, America's uh, America's Stonehenge. Yeah, right. Yeah, and that's the same deal. They found uh, it points to eclipses, etc. Yeah. So so yeah so that was and then I've you know worked a a few times using Stellarium and. so I thought, well, yeah, we'll measure the measure the angles and start looking up and see what we can find. Basically, uh, how I got involved in it. Okay. Well, where are we? Sixty seconds, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, well, one and, of the, one of the things you found, which I thought was so interesting, is that NASA is advertising through this commercial company that this software basically is official. It's exactly the same software that NASA uses to go places. And yet they say in their, you know, instruction manual, but you can't really count on it before a few thousand years, right? I think, yeah, I think the latest one, uh, they said before uh, 13,200 uh, 13, years ago, or actually more than that because counting the years from from zero to to 2023 but anyway yeah to minus 13200 on their counting on the negative side Mm. and as far okay well hold it there we're at the top of the hour my guest this morning is greg Ahrens. we're talking about how do we date whoever built this amazing thing on the moon You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thank you. 
The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Back everyone on this Saturday evening, greeting at some point into Sunday morning here in the land of enchantment. Been watching the moon lately, and my uh, hyperdimensional measuring stuff. There are correlations. That'll, that'll be a whole show. We'll, we'll do video, and I'll figure out how to work this camera so that we get some really interesting video of things that are going on that physics says are impossible. So, Greg, um, where were we? Oh, yeah, you're okay. using this program. And the first thing you told me very excitedly was, oh, the original only went back like 5,000 years, you know, 4,000 right. change. And the new one goes back 100,000. And right. I thought, bingo, we've got them. Because somewhere in that period of time, a spacefaring civilization, because you can't live on the moon unless you're a space culture, no air. No resources, no hothouses, no clouds, mountains, rain, or air to breathe. <clears throat> so it's got to be a spacefaring culture who left something so eerily like terrestrial analogs on the moon, aimed at this big thing in the northeast that obviously said, this guy's important. So we both went into this rather naively thinking a few keystrokes, and Greg will have the time when the uh, this, this thing was lined up and instead I get these series of emails and letters like out of out of Leavenworth like you'd been imprisoned with chains to a desk and, and forced to drink you know water and eat only bread because it was nothing like as simple as a few keystrokes not the least of which was this bizarre frankly in, in, impossible to believe disclaimer that, oh, yeah, the program goes back under 1,000 years, but you can't trust it past 13,000. Right. Or or 17,000 going forward. <laughs> 17,191. But, uh, but that disclaimer is actually uh, it's for, the, for observing the moon and other planets. Um, basically, they're saying that they're saying that their formulas – you know their mathematical equations and everything. Or if you're a, 
you're observing from the Earth, you pick a spot on in the Stellarium, you put your hometown or any any city you want, any place on the Earth, and you look at the sky and you go, you know, 100,000 years back or 100,000 years forward, the, the stars and all that stuff are all going to be in the right place within like arc seconds. That's what they're they're claiming. Okay, so. But what is not going to be in the what right is place? Not is, the moon and <laughs> everything else. The moon and the inner planets, and uh, the planets and the moon and <laughs> okay. So so when I started going back, I said, well, you know, you originally suggested maybe uh, twenty six thousand to thirty thousand years ago. Well, I thought in terms of one processional cycle, and we've got some data points from John West and a few others <clears throat> relating to a potential time frame for the last high-tech, space-faring, possible terrestrial civilization, our great-great-great-great-grandmothers, at about 30,000 years. So, you know, that's that's about a 5,000-year window. And I thought if we get a hit, correlations there, it'll be, you know, our bells ding, 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 because that would have been the time when other dates are converging on, like about 30,000 years ago, humans had spaceflight. They knew all their neighbors out there, relatives, whatever. And then something horrible happened, and we've been trapped on Earth ever since, and no one's letting us know this is not normal. So what did you find as you went tripping down the path with your little bouquet of flowers and your parasol? Right, yes. So I I went into, you know, in the 28, uh, excuse me, minus 28,000 to minus 24,000, and I mainly looked at the stars because uh, you know, see where the sunrise and sunsets and where different you know stars that we've been traditionally following in NASA rituals, uh, like the Orion's Belt stars, Sirius, Regulus, a um, uh, few others, and I got some. Well, orig- my original drawing, I got. I got a couple of angles off, so I made some mistakes, and I found some matches that no, are no longer matches under that system. But <laughs> the thing was, then I so I jumped ahead. Then I said, "Well, what about hundred thousand years ago?" And I went back there and started looking, and crazy things were happening because, you know, we're always told that the moon one side faces the Earth. And and the side, you know, where this Apollo 12 side is, which was uh, what I was using for my observation on the moon, um, it, it, the Earth is up on the, up in the sky on that side. Yeah, it should be close to the zenith. And it's close to the zenith, and it doesn't it doesn't rise or set. I mean, it just stays there. Well, it, it, it kind of moves back and forth a little bit because of something called libration. But basically, right. it never but, gets anywhere near the horizon. Right, and actually, well, the Earth, I guess the Earth, well, actually the moon is bobbing, and that makes the Earth appear to bob. Yeah, exactly, yeah, 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 exactly. Okay, so, um, so I get to, to 100,000, and I see the Earth is, is like rising in the, I don't remember, rising in the west and setting in the northeast, and, or no, it's right. Anyway, it's setting up near near the North Pole or near the North, 
and then it rises again, and it sets near the uh, it sets directly south. And so good, I said, well, good the Earth, the Earth doesn't rise and <laughs> I mean, it, that I know of. Well, hang on, hang on, because you know, remember, this is a this is a program commercially available all over the world. Millions of people are using it or bought it or whatever. It's based on the official NASA software determining everything in the U.S. space program and right. other space programs because we're at the top of the heap. You know, what NASA sanctions in terms of science is the gold standard. So Japan uses it, Russia uses it, England uses and they all use the same software. Right. And, and yet <laughs> when you run it software, it shows the moon moving like yesterday, not billions of years ago, but like 100,000 years is like an eye blink in cosmic time, moving so bizarrely, radically different than we've ever been told. Only two things can be true. Either the program itself is nuts, meaning, you know, garbage in, garbage out. There's some huge fatal flaw in this which is unbelievable because this is the program that NASA uses. And if it didn't match with amateur and private enterprise missions to other planets, everybody would soon know. And they'd be tearing their hair out to figure out what was wrong. And if this was covering up a huge secret, which is my inclination, the secret <laughs> would, would basically come out. So what would that secret be? That's the difference between Newtonian physics, relativity, and hyperdimensional physics. Because remember, the cornerstone of the hyperdimensional model is rotation is not what you think it is. It's an access point, a way to go from three dimensions to higher dimensions. It's all in the mm. rotation and in multiple rotations, which include things like nutation and precession. Those are descriptions of motions of rotating objects in the solar system. So what you seem to have either tripped over is the world's biggest software goof on the part of NASA and everybody all over the world using this. I mean, how many of those users are going to go back 100,000 years? Why would they? Why would they they're not going to live that long? So, of course, they don't give a damn. Or forward, <laughs> right. right? You know, forward. So, the only other thing would be you can't have two sets of books. You only have one software out there that describes reality. What if the physical celestial mechanics that they're modeling in the computer lead to such bizarre, totally unknown motions because those are the real motions of the solar system in the hyperdimensional model, and everything else is a charade. Because <clears throat> nobody looks at a long enough slice of time to see the differences mount up. Well, and, and also in the, uh, the note that they said, uh, you know, this is inaccurate for observing the moon, it said, if you go into the future about 80,000 years, you can see start getting uh, you start getting the moon going into an uh, a polar orbit of the Earth, and they said, "Well, this is nonsense." 
Oh, it says, and then, and then after that, it goes into elongated uh, orbits and things. So, so yeah, people, people probably aren't going to be looking at normally. <laughs> and those that are can be dismissed. Right. You know, like us. You know, who like are they? Us. They, they well, don't. Yeah, you know, there's no expertise. I'm sorry. I said they're going to claim we have no expertise, and who's going to listen to us? If the media are like they were with, with, with Musk in the launch this morning, basically giving a slanted story. Right, yeah. Well, there's another thing that occurred to me. I thought, well, you know, they, you, they, you see a comet come in or, you know, something, or something. It comes in and they, they take a few measurements and then they throw it into a mathematical equation and say, well, it came from that direction and it traveled from, you know, so many million years ago and came on this path and then it left. Well, how do they know? Because I mean, they're using Newton's equations modified by relativity. Right. What if there is another set of laws of physics of celestial motion that are really driving, here's the pun, really driving the train? <laughs> and the only persons who would ever encounter that are people who calculate navigation between planets for space programs, right? Right. Up until relatively recently. Now we have all kinds of private companies sending CubeSats to the moon, sending CubeSats to Mars, sending CubeSats into orbits. And all those people have to be playing on the same playing field. Otherwise, their computer projections of what their hard-earned monies bought them is a pile of crap they will crash they will not get where they're supposed to go so you can't keep go ahead but they're but they're going in relatively present time yeah but but the program can't be segmented in other words it's it's garbage in garbage out if you tell the computer use all the motions of this model to calculate for a hundred thousand years forward or backward in time the motions of the solar system, it'll do it. Remember, computers are just super, super fast these days, adding machines. It will add and add and add and add. Now, if there's an unknown factor in the physics of real celestial motions, remember, rotation, 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 and the fake stuff that we're being fed in schools that only, you know, approximates for a few thousand years, nobody would know that but the in-crowd. Now, I need to give you, and then I don't want to bring on, on Maria because she's got some amazing stuff to, uh, to show us based on this tease. Uh-huh. Um, if the physics is different than we've been told, which it is, I'm measuring right now up in the living room, it's different. Then over time, those discrepancies, that difference will become larger and larger and larger. What happens in, in, in zero gravity, if you apply a force to an object, it'll move. If you apply a force that nobody thinks of or has calculated, it's still going to move. It doesn't count. It doesn't matter what you think it is. It's what reality is, and that's where science and observation and the right theory are crucial. So okay. my thinking is that this program, giving you these incredibly bizarre results, is not a bug in the program. 
It is the program, and no one's ever supposed to use it to go back 100,000 years because you get what you got, and there's a structure on the moon tonight marking that incredible celestial reality for some reason. Maybe if for no other reason than to liberate us when we got back to the moon with rockets. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. I, I did find, uh, now of course when I made my map and my, my, my pictures with the circle and I, I yeah, why, don't, why, took, don't, why don't we refer to some of your numbers here? I think number one and two go together. You know, horse right. and carriage, love and marriage. Right, right, right. Okay, item one and item two. Item one and item two were my first attempts. And those are the ones are, that are, have a are, are, are you looking? Because they look yeah, like... Yeah, I have it here. Yeah, okay, okay. Just, just checking, just checking. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, a few of them had... Uh, I had a couple of... When I measured, I had to put it in a photo program and then twist a... You know, draw a line and then twist it or, you know, rotate it mm-hmm. or whatever. And then start with the numbers that it gave me and then, then subtract and, you know, figure. I, I made a couple mistakes. So those one and two are, are there's some matches on there. But I, and then my bottom ones, which is uh, 11, I'm sorry, 10 and 11 are my newest revised uh, attempts. But I... Well, you're showing your work. You're showing all science. Show my work. All science evolves from not knowing what the hell's going on right. to finally fi- to finally figuring it out, and it's a trial and error process in many occasions, particularly yeah. dealing with something as alien as the motions of the moon over a hundred thousand years. Why did they okay. put the program out if it's supposed to be useless? Right. Come on. It's- they did say if we're observing distant stars to get an idea of what, what stars are where 100,000 years ago, that, that the distant stars are probably correct. Okay, I've got but, a, I have a submission for you. We need to figure out the motions of Orion and Sirius at some point. That's, okay. That's a separate project, okay? But, well, let me tell you, on the, what I've seen so far from 100,000 and from 26,000 and whatever, that, that the... Uh, that the stars basically rise and set in the same places over that whole period. I mean, it, the moon spins, its, its rotation is actually more stable than the Earth's. Yeah, it's, 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 it's actually tilted one and a half degrees to its orbit. Right. Almost straight up and down, unlike 23 and a half for the Earth, which, by the way, varies in a cycle. Right. And that precession of the moon is 18.6 years. Compared right. to 26,000 for the right. Earth, yeah. which in the equations is because of the small mass of the moon compared to the big mass of the Earth. At least that's what they're telling us. Okay. Now, let me, let, me, let me interject, not theory, but actual weird NASA data. Do you remember offhand the one NASA mission? Actually, the one mission by anybody, anywhere, anytime, either manned or unmanned, sent by any nation or any private group, Musk included, that literally turned off everything during the mission. It's sailing around in orbit in space, but none of the electronics, none of the 
inertial nav systems, none of the gyroscopes, the accelerometers, you know, anything is, is, is alive and operating electronically in the spacecraft. It's basically like a big, dumb cannonball hurling <clears throat> through space with nothing in it, certainly not its, in itself, rotating. Do you remember what mission that was? No. Apollo 13. Oh, okay. Now, what happened during Apollo 13? They launched toward the moon. They had an explosion. They had to separate, um, uh, or they, they had to go into the <coughs> lunar module as a lifeboat. They had to husband water, power, electricity, heat, food, everything. And they barely got back to Earth with enough uh, oxygen to, 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 to breathe and water to keep the spacecraft, you know, in the right condition to be reanimated so they could enter and land safely. Okay. So they turned everything off. And then NASA, several times during the mission, as the Apollo spacecraft with three astronauts sailed up, Apollo 13, up around the moon, around the backside, fired engines, aimed toward Earth, several times during that complicated process to get them home, with nothing rotating, the okay. spacecraft trajectory deviated wildly from what NASA was using in its computers to get them home. Uh-huh. And it, I, I pointed this out over the years. I've written you know, papers on it. It's obviously hyperdimensional physics intruding in real-world celestial mechanics. So after that, the programs quietly were adjusted to account because it was a huge experiment. How do you measure free flight in orbit without a rotating system? You do it in a mission. In this case, by maybe accident, maybe design, it was Apollo 13. Well, remember, NASA, never a straight answer. Right. Well, yeah. I remember your discussion of the uh, uh, the original, was it the Vanguard, the original no, ICBM? No, no, it was Werner von Braun Explorer. It, it was rotated specifically to stabilize it like a rifle bullet, and instead the rotation caused it to gain something like 600 miles in its orbit, apparently energy coming from nowhere. Right, right. And it took NASA a while to kind of figure this out quietly, but they never imagined they would have to use this software publicly to save three human beings, which is why maybe, this is going to sound weird, the good guys, to force this into the open, set up problems with Apollo 13 so NASA would have no alternative but to save them. And in, their, in saving them, thereby make their secret software public. You follow me? Right, yeah. And how do we know that? Because the explosion that took out the oxygen tanks that triggered the whole you know, disaster occurred 55 hours, 54 minutes 53 seconds into the flight. <clears throat> and that's impossible. <laughs> okay. That's a clock. Right. Because 55 is one of the sacred Masonic numbers of hyperdimensional physics, and these guys cannot go to anywhere without <clears throat> doing a ritual, even right. going to the John. Right. So that's the model. So based on all that, you came up with, in the model, thousand years ago, 
from now is when the Earth, which is two degrees wide, four times bigger, well, it depends on the orbit, you know, from the moon as seen from the Earth, mm-hmm. rose from the center of the circle on the moon behind the time capsule or whatever else it is, sarcophagus, mausoleum, you know, the, the, those are one of my two favorite alternatives now. Okay. And we're never supposed to know this. <laughs> and the fact that out of all the gin joints in all the world, you know, mixing our metaphors in Casablanca very freely, NASA sent not one spacecraft, Surveyor 3, but two missions to the same damn crater the size of the Astrodome to do something tells me that NASA has known for a very long time where to check their celestial mechanics calculations on the moon. And this becomes their calibration. It also is telling us something really interesting, which is the perfect segue. Uh, I'm going to go to Maria next, because what it tells me in the ritual, the guy or gals or folks who are buried on the moon in that mausoleum once presided as kings and queens and pharaohs and gods over human life on earth, which is the perfect segue to Maria Wheatley. What do you think? Yes, it's all very fascinating. And when we look to, for example, on one of my uh, pictures that I sent to Richard, to an ancient stone circle uh, in Egypt, that too aligns to Sirius and Orion. It's it's called a Nabtar player. Oh, is it about- that special? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, in 6,400 B.C., it aligned to Orion, and in 6,088 B.C., it aligned to Sirius. And that's very similar to the stone setting or the objects that you mentioned on the moon. It's very similar. So I think, you know, that on Earth, they could have been, had some ancient knowledge about this passed to them. Exactly. And the, the lunar thing in this model was a template. And when the knowledge was transferred to ancient cultures here on Earth, they duplicated it on Earth, which has, of course, different alignments and different directions and all that. But the geometry is the same because they were marking super important things in their own histories almost disappeared from the modern record. That's right. And if we look to, you know, that template on Earth, it's like I said in the, one of the other shows, one of the best stone alignments is Greystone Circle in Monmouthshire, Wales, because it's almost identical in the size of it and in the diameter. And it's interesting to know. That oh, hang on, Earth, hang on, hang on. We, we didn't mention the circle on the moon we know is about 30 feet in diameter. How do we know yeah. that? Because the Chandrayaan spacecraft took a picture of the lunar module right next to it, 200 feet away, and it's got a known height and width and depth and a shadow, and you do all that simple geometry, and you come up with an exact size for the circle on the moon, 30 feet, give or take, and it's the same as ancient circles all over the Earth. Yes, exactly, and... If we look to Ireland, which is a megalithic wonderland, then those circles with a similar diameter and similar height stones are multiple stone circles. That means it's not just one. They all align to each other across the, the landscape 
of Ireland. So maybe on the moon we can look to other features as well that are set very similar to those circles. And it's also been noticed that stone circles in the United Kingdom, they all align roughly to 23 and a half degrees, which is the axis of the Earth. That's right. In distance from each other as well. So if we project that to the moon's uh, axis line, we may expect to find other features roughly about 18.5 miles from each other on the moon. Oh, my. All right, hold up. You're right there. We're at the bottom of the hour. Yeah, are we? Yeah, we are. Okay. My guest this morning is Greg Ahrens and Maria Wheatley. Others to join us very soon. We're discussing the reality, how we're measuring with science the parameters of this obviously constructed monument. But the bigger question is why was it done? Who did it? And when did they do it? And can we get out of all that the meaning of a Stonehenge on the moon? We shall return. Today, we're introducing the next chapter of Notion AI. It's called Q&A, and it gives you the superhuman ability to remember absolutely everything that's documented across your Notion workspace. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight here in the land of enchantment, about 11.30 local time. It's cloudy out there. We're having, uh, we're having storms, I think, winter. Uh, winter is approaching. So, uh, Maria, back to you. Yes, I've seen just before the, the break how, you know, if we project this as a template, then there's going to be on Earth a lot of these stone circles. And that there are indeed, there's numerous examples all across uh, megalithic Europe of similar sized circles. And if we also look to alignments, 
such as ley lines and earth currents and that type of thing, then it's interesting to note that if you use a similar template, again, if we look at these to be templates, that where the ancient Egyptian stone circle is in relation to the pyramids, for example, which is picture number two on my items, we can see that it's aligned to particular lays, and we know this. There's been documentation. Let me stop you there. We have established, both with your experimentation, my Accutron work, and a huge database of other researchers, that the Earth is gridded with some kind of energy highways, which go north-south at different angles, and the world is like a ball of twine if you could see the energy patterns glowing, right? Exactly, exactly. And it's so, what like you a have, so what you have done is to transfer that known grid to the moon, which is an object yeah. one quarter the size of the Earth, and you're looking for corresponding angles, relationships, importance, et cetera, et cetera, and you came up with something. That's right. When we do that, when we look at ancient sites in their alignments and project that around the globe, you get a whole system with sites lining up. And that has been documented now for, for many, many decades. And if we do that on the moon and use a similar system, it's interesting to note that the same access in picture number four of those, that Egyptian stone circle and the pyramids and many temples of the, of the Nile as well, and we look to where Apollo 12 landed, it's on that same grid. Oh, my so, God. Oh, my yes, it gosh. Is. So, so we think, you know, that when it comes so what, to so the... So what, the, so what does it correspond to? Anything we would know? Well, it corresponds to if you use the main meridian line of Egypt with the pyramids and the Nile temples and the stone circle that I've previously mentioned, and we look for a crossing point on that particular line, which is yellow on picture number four, and then we look to a crossing point, which is a, a green line coming down, that's where Apollo 12 landed. So we know that perhaps NASA are using particular grid systems in their takeoff and in their landings alike. Which are hyperdimensional, the physics, the hidden physics. The, the hidden physics, like you said, energy highways that could maybe support takeoff and support landing using these lay grid systems. Well, I would presume it's a technology like the quantum drive now being tested in Earth orbit, this, this wouldn't really affect rockets, but it might affect alternative propulsion systems. And for many years, Maria, there has been a rumor that Apollo did not land so successfully so many times on the moon and get everybody home by using rockets. And in fact, they had a secret space drive in the lunar module, which allowed them like the drive in the spacecraft in Earth, Earth orbit tonight when they turn it on, allowed them to basically push against hyperspace and not require any fuel at all. And that's why every mission worked perfectly. Yes, and I, I think that this is where that grid system comes in. It is supporting that type of model. 
And when even when we look to the landing of Apollo 12 in my picture number six, so we've looked at where it was on the moon. Now we go to where it landed on Earth. That, too, follows very closely, not the exact crossing point of the grids, but on one of those lines as well. So it's all about really takeoff and landing are crucial, especially the landing on the moon to these particular grid and lay systems, which we know are energetic and, like I said, I think are very supportive of successful missions. So if NASA knew, because Ron and I, Ron Gerbron, who's going to come on shortly, uh, Ron and I have looked, been looking at orbiter imagery and lunar reconnaissance, reconnaissance orbiter imagery of the moon, and he thinks he's found another circle on another part of the moon, which we'll probably talk about. I think they're incredibly hard to find unless you know where they are. If you have a secret map handed down through secret societies for tens of thousands of years, a priesthood, a venerated, very few inside that know the truth, and these are sacred documents, and then you get to the 20th century and you create a space program we now know numerically founded on ancient rituals over and over and over again, all the flybys and launches and landings, etc., are on this ancient sacred knowledge. Wouldn't it kind of stand to reason that if you're going to the moon as part of a secret program to go and bring back information which has been stored for you, a time capsule, a library, an ancient connection to your, their dim, dim, dim descendants, wouldn't you go there to A, check out whether it was real and then send men at the level of technology, robots didn't exist that could do this back then, send men to go and retrieve what they were supposed to find and bring home. Makes sense to me. Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, we know that, you know, secret societies, mystery schools have been used in this lay network for following on from the ancient megalithic culture, same as the Templars did as well. So this, this knowledge has been handed down ever since the, the megalithic culture that started the ancient alignments on that grid system, which is mirrored earlier, possibly even on the moon. And other planets beside, they all have their own particular types of grid systems, not just uh, obviously Earth. It, it goes to planets that are, are rock and, and generate these, these energy highways, as you called them, which I quite like that term, Richard. You may steal it freely. <laughs> <laughs> so if we apply these grids to other planets, rotating dynamic hyperdimensional systems, they should be similar. The details may vary depending upon the mass and the spin and their polar orientation to their orbits. I would imagine there would be some adjustments, but the basic physics would be the same, and it would be the same physics underlying this very amazing experimental program going to light up its engines in Earth's orbit in the next few days and completely destroy Newton. 
Yes, and just to give a further example of how the grid system was used on the, the moon, if you go to item number seven in the picture gallery, then even Luna 24 in 1976 landed quite close to that grid system as well. So it's not just a one-off with the Apollo 12 mission, it's other sites besides, it's other landings besides. So I think, yes, they were definitely utilizing this energetic grid categorically. Well, this gets back to something. Let me go back to my items because this actually has blown me away. Go back to Richard in the Radio with Pictures thingy. Click on that. Go down to image number 13. Click on 13. What do you see? I admit it's not sharp, a little fuzzy, because that's the limit of resolution of the film. But there are two complex building-like things uh, at opposite ends of the picture. It's a rectangle. There are objects in between that look like tanks, you know, like, like petroleum tanks we have here on Earth or fuel tanks or whatever. And then there is a white conduit, like a pipe, going from the architecture on the horizon on the left down the slope of the crater to something in the middle of the picture that appears to be some kind of fluid transport apparatus, like, 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 a, like a pipeline. And it's broken at the very top near the structure on the horizon. The, when I look at the, at the overall uh, lunar reconnaissance orbiter or orbiter three maps from uh, uh, lunar orbiter, the nearest thing I can see on the landscape where this picture was taken by being on the first EVA, which is out in front of the lunar module to the west, is basically at the horizon, which is two miles away, which means these are not small objects. These are building size, structural, symmetrical geometries indicative of an ancient civilization building on the moon. The only problem is when? Maria, did I lose you? Uh, no, yes, exactly. That is the question. It's when. And it's a bit like the megalithic culture here. You have to start asking the questions, who built them, when they were built, and what were they, were they used for? They're the kind of crucial questions that people have been questing for for many, many years. Indeed. Okay, let's bring in Ron Gerbrun. Is Ron with us? Ron, are you there? I don't hear Ron. So I see him in... It's the muting thing, Ron. Uh, it's yeah. going to be on our tombstones. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I am I was looking at Maria's things. I'm looking at your things. And, you know, it's like the mute button was way back on the other page. So anyway, yes. All right, what do you want? Well, as our resident generalist, what are your impressions of A, the model, and B, the new data? Uh, well, which new data? I've been staring at this for a couple weeks now. Well, start with the idea that this was not a random set of rocks on the moon tossed out by... Oh, heavens, it's not a random set of rocks. Uh, I have to say, what Maria's first picture there, that uh, 
uh, Naptoplaya picture. Uh, that looks more like this than any sort of simple ring. Uh, the big grumpy uh, complaint I was going to make was that there's more than 12 uh, spots, lumps, men here's pillars, whatever you want to call them, um, and whatever they might be. It could be a mixture of things. So I think that there are a couple of different patterns that are laid well, out there. Well, there would obviously be different alignments, and that would give you the cross correlations that would zero in on a unique age. In my model, this is a clock, because if you get correlations, uh, every coincidence wouldn't come up the same alignment every time, you know, because of the other motion. So it would it would narrow down the date, and and Greg has not had a chance to those yet. Because he just figured out this program is actually more like you know you know navigating Starship than it is you know using uh, Redshift. Uh yeah. Actually, I've seen Stellarium before. I've never seen Redshift, but I'll take your word for it. Yeah, planetarium programs are. Um, well, they, I don't know that this was what it was initially intended for. Do you? Not yet. Yeah. But that's where you uh, that's where you get the weight of evidence and the different variety. And I think Maria is really onto something in terms of the grid pattern, the energy, the HD grids on both worlds. Because again, these sites were chosen not because the scenery looked great, but because the energetics was correct. Hey Richard? Oh, yeah, Greg. Well, go ahead. Just Greg. Um one of the I, I I read through part of the part of the manual, and I read the introduction to the to the manual for Stellarium, and the fellow who wrote it uh, was one of the original uh, guys that worked on the on the program, and his his orientation is toward archaeology, towards uh, looking at you know like. These, these stone circles and things. Right. I mean, or any sites on, you know, on the earth, the idea being that you can set the stellarium to a certain observation point on earth and then look at, see what the stars that were at that date, you know, when it originally started out with, with a lot shorter time span. And uh, <clears throat> so he is of that, of that bent, of that nature. Excellent. Excellent. Well, again, this goes back to the idea that there are two sets of knowledge. There's the real stuff hidden, protected inside, and there's the fake stuff outside, and never the twain shall meet. Except when you develop a whole cadre of secret, not sorry, not secret, private space programs, you've got to make the inside match the outside. Otherwise, the whole secret will collapse. People will buy programs, and they won't get where they're going, and they'll get very mad, and there'll be lawsuits, and There'll be testimony and there'll be evidence and ultimately your biggest secret of all time becomes an open secret, which of course they don't want us. To. Oh, oh, Richard, are you familiar with, uh, I just read it this week, um, a commercial lunar mission going up like next year? Yes, there's several. The moon? Yeah. And they're planning to land in the Sea of Storms? Well, that's where the Chinese landed, Oceanus Procellarum. Isn't that where, or what's the... Uh, uh, we're, we're the surveyor and, and Apollo 12. Well, that's that's in that's in the uh, eastern end. Procellarum is a huge, you know, mare uh, level lava basin, 
studded with craters. So I think, I mean, uh, Ron and I have looked at some of the LRR imagery of the surroundings to to uh, the Surveyor Crater. There's artificial stuff down there all over. It's just right. circles. Looks like they're going, I think they said they're going further, near the northern part of it or something, near the edge. Uh, well, anyway, the, well, the Chinese land. They may see some stuff. <laughs> well, they may be see some stuff related to our stuff. Well, this goes back to who's going to really see it. I think it's going to be Musk tourists with binoculars, with cameras, loaded with our database, our briefing. You know, we have ways to get to them now. We've been working quietly for several months now on getting directly to some of them, and we're they're going to be equipped. You know, as the old phrase goes loaded for bear when they go into lunar orbit they're going to know what to look for and there's going to be no way that nasa or the deep state or anybody else can keep secret what they see because if they if they uh, if that happens they would have to be murdered killed and that would raise <laughs> so i'm i'm sorry it's deadly serious people right. people have died documentably to keep this secret but it's now kind of coming apart because all kinds of private individuals equipped with technology that no one in the deep state could have imagined a half century ago are now available on a phone. On a phone, for God's sake. Right. Well, you have to get there first. So I think the fact that it's being – that disclosure is somewhat ongoing uh, kind of cuts down on the body count. They're, they're not as eager to exactly uh, no 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 this is this is going to yeah. ultimately okay. come out and i think it's going to be in the relatively not too distant future maybe between now and the election because remember mm-hmm. who we gave the keys to the kingdom to who's running for president yeah. and he never uttered a public word the intelligence community top secret documents is what's on the moon and in the solar system and who's visiting us part of that secret stash of documents that has been carefully designed to come out at trial, an open trial? Is this another way to make disclosure irrevocable in the most Rube Goldbergian fashion one can imagine? Yeah, it works for me. If, if somebody <laughs> would just come out and say something, that would be good. I'm not, um, uh, not going to hang it on um, Trump at the moment. <laughs> he's uh, busy. Yeah, but, um, but it looks like he's busy doing exactly what he wants to do, and that gets me to looking at other motives that may not be part of the public discussion yet. Never let him see you sweat. Yeah, he's. Uh, Although I must say that one mainstream anchor the other morning did raise the possibility that the secret of UFOs and UAP is in the hidden documents. Really? Yes. Really, I. And I okay. haven't talked to them. I guarantee you, holding up okay, my, my, they, my right hand. You know, I, I swear by you, Stellarium. I did not talk to them. Yeah. Okay. You, but I've been um, talking about this for a long time. Anyway. Yeah. Um, I'd wish that was it. I just don't know uh, if anybody out there does know the exact uh, type contents of all of that paperwork that they're uh, fussing over. I'd love to know. That would uh, that would clarify a lot of things. Well, this has become a huge cause celeb behind the scenes of the trial. You know mm-hmm. that Judge uh, Cannon is now delaying, so the trial will take 
she says maybe the winter or spring of 2025 is when she'll be able to bring this to a jury. That's a huge amount of time. And they're arguing over something called SEPA, which is classified information protocol system or something having to do with top, top, top secret documents and what a defendant can use to defend himself or herself in open court. In other words, it all comes down to what can be released from the security deep state to compromise their deepest secrets. And one of the weird predictions is that when push comes to shove, wouldn't it be interesting if all of the 91 indictments against, well, counts actually, against Trump Mm. magically go away because he holds, oh, you're going to hate this, the Trump card. Mm. Uh-huh. And he took it oh. because we told him what he had, what he was sitting on as president mm-hmm. that he hadn't a clue about before we showed him carefully with the briefing video. This is your get out of jail free card. <laughs> I'll throw in an evil, uh, evil laugh for the um, Trumpster if that's what he had in mind. I didn't. He's good at this. Look, I, my, chat, my, my job, my job is to think outside the box. Yeah, well, good, good, good. I'm not just dis- and, and, and then to find the evidence to support the outside of the box theory. I admit this yeah. is pretty, pretty, pretty far out, but so is discovering that NASA has secretly visited an ancient lunar temple twice in the history of the Apollo mm-hmm. missions. Twice, and yeah, that, I... and that the guys that went don't seem to have a clue as to what they landed to do because their footprints in the NASA imagery look to have been nowhere near the time capsule or the circle i was just going to mention the footprints because i uh, i think i dispute the idea that they had uh, erased them from the um pictures uh i think they just didn't go there very often and huh very often it's, it it takes more than yeah. one pass to leave those boot prints in the in the soil and, and you can see it Fair where, where it's yeah. where at Surveyor, the ground is very dark. Why? Because they stop back and forth, back and forth. They cut things off. They sampled. They photographed. They moved around, and they really stirred up the dirt so that the dark underground is visible. Mm-hmm. Areas where they made one trail, one pass, the, mm-hmm. the evidence is fainter, but it seems to be there in the data. And then, of course, we have the picture. If, if, if Bean had not gotten close to that sarcophagus or mausoleum, and I want to thank Greg for correcting me when I said it might be a cenotaph, that turns out to be like, 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 like a billboard. Tombstone. Or, 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 yeah. or a tablet or a tombstone. Yeah, this yeah. is either a, a forest lawn mausoleum or a sarcophagus like we find buried all over Egypt, uh, like at Saqqara, where they have these huge coffins with granite lids, granite bodies, incredibly precisely cut geometrically. This damn thing, Maria, looks exactly like an ancient Egyptian sarcophagus transported to the moon. I have another theory. Oh, sorry, Maria, but just let me say, I I have another idea what it might be uh, that I hadn't discussed with you. From its shape and looking at it closely, there's some a little bit of business on the left side of it in the darkness there. I think it's a ca- it could be a carriage, you know, like for a gun 
you know, like the you see a long barrel gun loaned around it. It could also be because of that sort of capsule shape. It could actually be not closed or broken into, but open. It could be another throne. Hmm. That's all. Sorry, Marie. Go ahead. No, that, that's fine. Uh, yes, Richard was talking about the Seraphim, the Asparra, and that they are quite fantastic. And like Richard said, the, the way that they are precisely cut, and what we're thinking now is that the hieroglyphs that were put on top of them were put on thousands of years later. They're not contemporary. So it was originally a, a blank canvas. Okay, well, I'm seeing. Put on top. Well, I'm seeing, and we've got about three minutes till the uh, top of the hour. In the lunar circle and the time capsule and that alignment, when I got the close-up look from Bean's picture of the, um, and there are three pictures he took close-up, of the sarcophagus or mausoleum, appears to be much more battered and eroded than the stuff making up the circle, indicating it could be really ancient and the circle much more recent, i.e., 30,000 years to indicate the importance of whoever, whatever big guy or big gal or both of them, I'm thinking Osiris and Isis, are buried in Madame's sarcophagus sitting there aligned to when the earth was behind the tableau, this connection optically, astronomically, and symbolically of an ancient ruler of earth, one of the Egyptian pantheon of gods. On the moon, buried where time stands still and they would be preserved like they were buried yesterday. Spiritual recycling, like Maria was just referencing. Well, ultimately, when you're dealing with hyperdimensional physics, it all seems to be kind of spiritual recycling. Anyway, well, you're yeah. on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. My guests this morning are Greg Ahrens and Maria Wheatley and Ron Gerbon joined us at the top of the hour, midnight here in the Land of Enchantment. We shall return. Midnight.com 
tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this now Saturday night, Sunday morning here in the Land of Enchantment, the witching hour, the hour of midnight. Okay, um, is Ruggiero with us? You need to unmute Ruggiero. Yep. There you are. Ruggiero Kalo is our British uh, artist. We have a bevy of artists, very talented. Uh, We've got Andrew Curry and Ruggiero does. I, I I really love your style. That's why I made up those images for my section tonight because you have limbed out why this is so damn important and in no way possible can it be natural. It's a building, and then take it from there because you have done further work and you've discovered some other things about this ancient and I mean really ancient sacred site. Go for it. Oh, thank you, Richard. Um, when I uh, did some sketches, I, I don't think Keith added my extra bits and pieces on there. Um, do you remember I, I sent you some, some emails across where I got my old protractor out? Is that the stuff you're talking about? Well, just look at your section. Pick and okay. choose whatever you want to talk about. It's all there. All right. Well, the the... Bits and pieces haven't seemed to come up. I'm going to try and refresh my page. Um, but we'll go, I think, to the... I'm going to talk about the angles, which aren't currently there. So I've got my protractor out and overlaid onto the stone circle and also my ruler. And I, I, I went all the way around to each different... Uh, do you want to call it limb? If you joined up, rock to rock. And they seem to be roughly symmetrical. There's There's a... There's a rough symmetry of spacing between um, many of the, the, the stones from the central point. So I've uh, got my ruler, I measured from the top all the way around. Uh, and certainly from, from the, if you call it number one to number eight, because there's 12 stones, um, they've all got an approximate rough symmetry um, in terms of length. Uh, the other thing, uh, I then put my protractor up, and from um, two to eight, there seems to be a pattern going on in the angles as well, um, which, um, let me see if I can bring up on my own computer. I've got some actual measures. They're not on the, on 
Keith hasn't managed to put them up at the moment, Richard, unfortunately. So I can't actually uh, fully discuss those. So I'm going to go on to, let's go on to my item number 3.1. Number item 3.1, which we discussed before, was quite interesting. Do you want to click on it? Yep, I'm there. Right, I think it's worth uh, having a, uh, another look at, at this because we're, we're talking about symmetry. And um, I, I need to get some of the other guests on to have a, have a, a jump in. But we can see that there's um, bilateral symmetry going on on the um, left-hand side corner of the rock. Yep. You can see the rectangle. Yeah, of course. And then it, go, then it goes up into uh, this pyramid-type shape with the top looks like it's been knocked off. If we didn't know this thing was on the moon, you ran into this in an ancient archaeological field expedition notes or whatever. You mm. would swear it's like a hundred others like all over the earth. Yeah. A, a big yeah. box designed to bury somebody mm. who was very rich and famous and needs to be venerated. You know what I did uh, two nights ago? I was around with my grandmother, bless her. She's 98 years old. And I said, man, look at that. What do you think of this? And she's always having a laugh at my work. And she goes, oh, well, that's, uh, that's a house, isn't it? Went, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she went, oh, well, you can see, like, the side, and then there's a face in there, and then there's, uh, you can see the roof going up. Oh, hang on one second. I, I think Maria mm. has to leave us. Are you still okay. there, Maria? Did she have to go away? Yeah, she she has a tour uh, this morning, so I think she had to to leave us. Sorry, sorry, Roger. I wanted to say that's okay. It's okay, Richard. Um, she goes, oh yeah, there's a house. Look, it, it kind of like it's got a roof on it. it. Looks like the roof's been smashed off the top. Um, Boy, you're, you know, you're you're you're. She has a good eye. Yeah, yeah. I think I've inherited. Uh, Can we hire her? <laughs> you could get her on. She's, <laughs> Which is quite challenging. Well, so, so many people, well, come on, all geniuses are, are challenging. Um, so many people, they look at this stuff and it's like, if, if they think of it in a familiar context, like here on Earth, mm. they'll recognize it. But mm. if you tell them where it is, they freak yeah. out. They suddenly go into huge denial. Yeah. It was like uh, decades ago, John West, our, our you know, now uh, erstwhile uh, citizen scientist archaeologist who did Egypt and found some amazing things about the pyramids and the Sphinx. He went to Harvard, and this was back at the time that uh, uh, what's his name? Um, oh, um, trying to think of a geologist who had measured the erosion rates on the Sphinx as being due to water. Oh, and and so Robert Schock. Robert Schock. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So so Robert took this set of photographs. Uh, I'm not sorry, not, not Robert, but John took uh, Robert Schock's photographs to this paleo, this Egyptologist um, in, uh, in, Egypt, in at Harvard at Peabody, and he had hmm. painted the piece of cardboard over the head, so all the geologists could see was the body and the erosion. Hmm. And he said, "Oh, oh well, that's water erosion. That's a yardang. You know, it was obviously laid down in a period when there was." lots of, of water in ancient Egypt. And then John took the cardboard off the top and he saw it was the Sphinx. And he freaked out and he threw John out of the office because you cannot, in their minds, they're academic 
narrow-minded, you know, overlays for whatever, you can't get them to think outside the box to where human history is something different in a high-tech phase than what we've been sold. And damn it, when you find a Stonehenge on the moon, that model that we're just stupid primitives rising up from the caves and inventing airplanes for the first time, it does not wash. Yeah, I mean, um, nature, I'm not a geologist, right, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but nature's not supposed to do perfect right angles. Is that correct? No, exactly. So why is, it, why is there now perfect right angle? Exactly. Uh, according to my sketch, anyway. Yeah, well, um, according to the measurements, you took the sketch from the, from the photograph, so. Yeah, yeah, so. And I, yeah. I think all that stuff on the top and on the front, ancient, eroded uh, filigree, like artwork, because artwork will have the finest detail and it will get smudged first. It will get smoothed out like the front corner. You see that Mm. corner, how how fuzzy it is, how rounded, whereas Mm. the other, the back edge and the top look sharp, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's interesting. How on the same moon can you get two different erosions based on two different things? Is it possible, given that we don't have a side view, that we're looking at two objects, one in front of the other? The one closest to us is really old. The Mm. one in its shadow is the newer. That raises a whole bunch of other questions. Yeah, yeah. Nice, for real. Just Um, go on, I'm I'm hearing Keith, uh, or is that Ron? Wrong. No, it was me. It was me making a uh, preliminary grunt. I, was just, I didn't want to start. I didn't want to cut into anybody's flow. I don't. Uh, the uh, you're mentioning the Sphinx, though, uh, and um, I just wanted to throw in a little tiny thing here. That thirteen thousand two hundred year uh, number that you tossed out earlier in the show. Well, let, let's check with Greg. Is that the canonical number you can count on, Greg, in the program? Um, yeah, that's the limit in the past of, uh, of the, okay, uh, to the year minus 13,200. And that's, that's half a, a processional cycle. And that's also and that's, very, oh. on earth. On earth. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's, but that's also that's, a well, go ahead. good date for the Sphinx. That's what I was. Yeah. No, no, no. That's, that's a really, you know, co- a good correlation with, uh, shocks data. Uh, well, I, never mind shocks data. From my data, that's a good... Uh, yeah, but uh, you're not there measuring the Sphinx. Thing. Whose papers did you read? Everybody's. <laughs> yeah, but shock was first. Unless you want to count Bud saying it was all much first older. First to what? First to what? He changed his mind about four times before he settled he, on the figures. Yeah, but he, he finally got there, finally got to the right place. Yeah, well, mine was, you know, his call his archaeological, mine anthropological, because uh, it uh, the timeline. I, I didn't want to derail things for that. I just thought that number matches something in my model about when the Sphinx was approximately actually built, and that's how far back it goes. Uh, I don't think, and but there's an odd thing of all the monuments there between. Um, um, Oh heck, I don't know Turkey and Egypt. Uh, the uh, the Sphinx is remarkably unmolested. There is a very Kilroy was here kind of 
thing and a couple of initials that were carved down around uh, the lower part of the torso by some Romans. That uh, you know, it's like uh, well, isn't this Julius because most here. of the time it's buried in sand up to its chin? Right. Yeah. yeah, but it's been preserved instead of either ignored or desecrated, unlike just about any other monument, ancient monument you can point to. And I always found that one of its great curiosities. And your theory to account for this? Uh, something that still had stature. The very earliest photographs of it, which would be have been taken in like the 1830s. Uh, right. show that it was still getting painted periodically. Remember, as you said, most of what people have seen through the millennia because of the sand was buried up to the neck. And that high, that section above that has been dutifully repainted with red paint over and over again to protect it from the sand. You know, just like you yeah. would yeah. put some... Yeah, well, it was even like called the Red Horus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why they called it that, because it kept getting repainted. Well, somebody had to do that. And since it was not part of the canonical Egyptian worship systems since the time of the Romans, uh, that's that's interesting on its own. So, you know, blame the, blame the Templars or the Illuminati or uh, the uh, – I don't know. But uh, it's – yeah, somebody has been, was maintaining it instead of carving their initials on it. Uh, there was only one reconstruction that seems to have mattered when they got away from the original configuration of the head and started putting other faces on it. Okay, well, I'm trying to but do... that's another topic. So yeah, what I've been trying yeah. to do, and Greg, of course, working with me, has been trying to validate, <clears throat> is a model that says if the current leading space agency on the planet, i.e. NASA, in its entire 50-year history has countless examples of launching and landing and flying by on a set of ritual stellar objects that are embodied in Sirius, the Orion, you know, um, uh, the, you know, Taurus, uh, Regulus, and, and certain planets at certain times, like Mars. Is it not possible that the origin of that very, very, very ancient celestial marker worship paradigm originates where we're looking here on on the moon and so i started looking at the various features and i was able to really you know it was it was um really torturous effort to get the detail that you can see in the central marker as ruggiero's number five you might want to click on that or not you know well clicking on it does help because as i said to ron you know during the week Mm -hmm. um Every like five separate people had looked at this and said, "Oh my God, there's a bunch of faces on this object," and this is the side of the marker in the circle that faces the time capsule or the sarcophagus or the mausoleum about 60 feet away to the northeast at 60 degree angle to the pole. And I looked at this and I see all these faces, and that means this has to be relatively young, otherwise the erosion of micrometeorites would have made it impossible to see let alone for separate people to all see the same thing and not just one visage, but multiples, like it was, you know, a piece of uh, Sri Lankan art, which has multiple images in one, you know, piece of artwork, carved in stone, whatever, whatever. So the more I looked at it, the more I realized that, wait a minute, 
the other side of this tallest thing in the center of the circle appears to be rounded and stepped. And, and the, we have an example of that in Ruggiero's number... Number two. Number, number two. And 1.1. 1. 1. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Number yeah. two. But the other side, the side that we're looking at in number five, which is from the opposite direction, you know, behind you is the is the sarcophagus or the temple. That to me looks like a giant chair, a throne. So you're supposed to sit in the chair facing the guy or gal in the sarcophagus, and that is supposed to tell you by metonymy and symbology, maybe who this represents and who in the Egyptian, I wish uh, Maria was with us, you know, she's missing the good part. Who is represented in the Egyptian pantheon of gods who ruled on earth before men, but Isis. Isis is represented by a throne, a throne of kingship, of rulers. And if this is representative of Isis, is the guy she's looking at across the way, 60 feet away, is Osiris, buried in this mausoleum, who for a while in the ancient mythologies of Egypt ruled all of Earth, and in fact is basically the canonical model for the presidency of the United States. Horus. Now we need reliable dating much later than 100,000 years, 85,000 years, to see if in a much more modern era with our NASA program, we're told, oh, you can't trust it. But if you do trust it, does it come up with repeated redundancies of Orion and Sirius in the lunar skies in the right time period? Greg? Wait a minute. Unmute. There you are. There you go. Okay. Uh, we well throughout the whole, basically through the hundred thousand back coming back this way, minus a hundred thousand coming back this way. Um, yeah, we have uh, uh, we have some of the. Some of the pieces of the monument fitting with like where Sirius set or where Sirius, I think I have where Sirius rises. Uh, yeah, you sent me I those just, tables early on and I said, please illustrate them because people's eyes will glaze over looking at numbers and azimuth. Right. And that, but that, that list, that was my, that was where I had wrong angles from my first try. Well, wait, wait, given that we're dealing with a very, a generous margin of error. I think we agreed on two and a half degrees plus or minus, which is five degrees. Right. That's a pretty loose association and time slippage can account for the error or the fact that the monument is now not level. It's tilted because the building under it collapsed. We don't know right. when that would have happened. Things would slide gently. That's why I think, as I said, my first night, why it isn't a perfect circle why it is kind of lopsided on the top left, the north-west uh, portion, because the bottom parts slid down further than the upper parts uh, and produced a, a kind of a lob, uh, kind of an oblong circle. 
Right. Okay, here's, uh, I just have a few in my, you know, compiled into one spot where I can see them, uh, some of these rising and setting, but the uh, opposite, the line opposite from the, the time capsule, what you call the time capsule or the tomb, through the center object of the circle. Which could be a throne. Which could be a throne. From, from, the, from the center, from the center to the time capsule is 63 degrees, but if you add 180 to that, that's 243. Yep. 243 degrees. <clears throat> 243 degrees at various times: Sirius sets and Orion Belt Star set. That's amazing. You know why? Because if the chair represents Isis, it means if you sit on the sarcophagus or you're in the sarcophagus and you look across her throne, you look at her star, Sirius, 8.7 light years away, setting in the lunar skies. Right. This is not coincidence. Sirius setting and Orion's belt star setting. Well, because they're family. They're all related. They're, they're, part they're of all the, related. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Ancient Egyptian and, mythology. And I have, let's see. This is too oh, cool for school. Has, Right. You realize how historic well, you realize how historic this is? You have labored and suffered for a good cause, Greg, because you're gonna go down history as the guy who found Sirius on the moon. <laughs> well why do you think papers why do you think papers have names on them? So history can keep straight who found what when. I'd be clapping my hands in the background except I need one to hold the phone. <laughs> <laughs> this is too this is too cool and the way to get there and verify all of it was overwhelmingly successful today out of Texas and the press basically said oh he blew it talk about a managed deep state propaganda right well in order to avoid a pronoun uh, firestorm or something uh it could you could have the people reversed, you know. It might be Horace sitting in that uh, throne, looking out at the one that's um, sitting some distance away. Because I'm, I'm yeah, down with the, the idea I, that it's I, another I, throne chair. Except the, hmm? the the hieroglyphs and the cartouche of Isis matches the throne. Right. Osiris. I seen the hieroglyphs. Yet. Osiris has a throne in it, but it's not the dominant hieroglyph in the cartouche. And I don't remember. Because they're related, I think Horus also has it. So we can't differentiate. I just know that Isis, predominantly, back going back to Budge's work, was identified with this throne. You know, a big chair. By the way, complete non sequitur. After the Oklahoma City bombing in um, what was what was the town in Oklahoma? Oklahoma City, of course. Of course. Oklahoma City. Idiot. All right. Um, they set up a memorial. Right? Do you know what the memorial consists of? A chair, a throne for every person killed in the bombing. ISIS chair. Google it. If that doesn't tell you there's a deep state death ritual going on by somebody, for somebody, at somebody, then, then what else would? Well, she did. She did predate uh, Lorena Bobbitt by a millennia, <laughs> uh, but um, very funny, very funny. 
Yeah, well, everybody has archetypes hiding behind I, them somewhere. I, I, I would imagine. Okay, so what are we missing? We're basically down about five minutes till the bottom of the hour. What have we not covered? I want to cover the idea about the faces because I see something so incredibly controversial to the left of the chair. Do you see that curved line, which I, and, and, you know, look, it's, it's symmetrical with the platform. There's one on the right, one on the left. You can. Sorry, which image are we looking at, Richard? Number five, the throne. My number. The chair with your number, with oh, the, yeah. with yeah, the yeah. faces. Okay, yeah. there's another face, just outside the right hand arm of the throne, sitting with its own geometry, like it had been brought from somewhere else, and was part of the tableau, but it's not part of the original design or architecture. Do you yes, see a tri- triangle sitting on the floor yeah, to the right yeah, hand yeah. side? Yeah. All right. Do you see the facial feature? It's within the, that right it's, triangle it's, to the right. It's, it's exactly. I'm sorry. To the left. If you're sitting uh, in the see, chair, if you're it, sitting it, in the in chair, the, it's to the right. In, in the in the in the block on the left, I see quite a few facial features. There's well, like, there's one that's larger than the others, and 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 yeah, and more recognizable. Mm-hmm. Now you want now, to hear. To, to, you want to hear an hysterical analysis of what I think I'm seeing? Go on. Go on. Adolf Hitler. Oh. Hmm. Look at the mustache. Oh, Look at the the fact that it's an add-on. If Hitler was viewed at the top of the Third Reich as descendant from the, the Nazis out there, you know what I call the extended bad guy family? Right. And the current breakaways are part of the same gestalt. And they took his ashes to the moon to marry him to the gods that are part of the ancient Nazi philosophy derived from Egypt. All we have to have is a private mission to go there and take a damn decent photograph. Just one. Scary. <laughs> well, but it opens up to the idea of who's trying to take over Earth now. You know who's risen the the, the lever on anti-Semitism to to supermax, and who has been doing weird things in terms of warfare to Lahaina, to you know Hawaii, to other places on Earth? Who sent the nuclear weapon to re-enter the atmosphere of the Earth over Indonesia that then um, Abi Loeb, a good Jew, found? having been part of the Mossad. Do you begin to get the idea there's a bit of history going on all around us that no one has thought far outside the box enough to figure out to make sense of the insensible? Certainly a crazy world out there that doesn't make make sense right now. Because you're not um, you're not comparing it's too it bad to the National Enquirer folded because um <laughs> Richard, Richard you'd be on the you'd be on the uh the um, cover next week. I used to I used, the whole purpose of the space program is to used, go to the moon to take a picture of Adolf Hitler. No, face. to worship the no. same gods they did. Remember yeah, who I took know. over the NASA program? Who took <laughs> over the NASA Bum program? Bum the Bum Nazis. Yeah. Didn't they? Mm-hmm. Why did I, the who was that new voice? Uh, no, that was that was 
that was me grumbling because oh, I'm a higher remembering something that Von Braun said. You know, remember his famous comment about uh, somebody uh, asked him if it didn't bother him designing those uh, missiles, and he said, "I only cared about getting them to, off the ground. I don't care where they go after that." You know, these, you know, this, this, yeah. this, not all of them were not all of them were um, uh, that uh, driven by some weird doctrine. Some are just scientists playing along to get with. Yeah, but those aren't the, those are not the people involved in the actual cover up mm-hmm. and the secret agenda. Hey guys, we are we, we, we are at the bottom of the hour. Everybody, hold it there. My guests this morning, too numerous to mention. Just go to the website and you'll find them. Ah, just kidding. It's Ron and Ruggiero, and Maria was with us. She had to leave. Uh, Greg Ahrens is with us. Who's done this incredible grunt work? which gives us a basis to actually figure out when it was done and thereby clues as to who, in fact, could have done it. And those clues are coming fast and furious. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. One last half hour to go. We shall return. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. In your mind, you have capacities, you know, to telepath messages through the vast unknown. Please close your eyes. Hey, everybody. Oh, we can't do that. Gosh, I'm having problems with my technology tonight. 
that is really, really bad. Don't do that. Don't do that. Okay, here we go. Here we go. With every thought See, the other possibility, which we haven't raised yet, is that we're not dealing with members of the family at all. What if, in fact, we're dealing with real aliens? Calling occupants of interplanetary, most extraordinary craft. Okay, so let me flow the flow the let me throw the floor open to a general kind of musing about where we can take this research. Uh, if we got any bright ideas, I think one of the most interesting things which is going to come to pass in the next few days is going to be the testing of this quantum drive which if it is successful and if it is made public and there's been enough press coverage now that if it isn't covered, there's going to be a lot of questions about why. And as you can see, if you read the piece that I posted tonight, there are several other groups who are also planning to do exactly the same thing that this rogue uh, space uh, agency group, which does private satellites for hire, has already done with what they call Barry One, the name of the spacecraft with the quantum drive orbiting the Earth tonight every 90 minutes, give or take, is called Barry One. And I don't think it's Barry Manilow or the other Barry. I think it has to do with somebody in the company. It's like, you know, when, when the International Astronomical Union opened up way back, you know, a century or so ago, the idea that any individual amateur astronomer who found a comet could name it anything they wanted. And so we got a lot of girlfriends and boyfriends in the heavens, uh, you know, attached to celestial objects that uh, are by, by right of uh, primogenitor go to the discoverer and he has or she has free reign in calling it anything he or she wants. Is it possible that we're sealing the same thing here with this uh, satellite, which is going to turn on its drive, drive 60 miles higher and completely turn the world of contemporary physics to say nothing of military science and top secret papers totally on its head by showing us Newton is not driving the car. Thoughts? Barry Allen. Barry the Flash. Allen. The Flash. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, that's another Barry. Yeah. All right. I was thinking more of the musicians, but... Yeah. Okay. Barry Manilow. I mentioned him. Remember? Yeah. Barry Gibbs. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Anyway, let us not get distracted. Okay. Right. Uh, looking at that picture of the, uh, is it number five? Yeah. Uh, the central marker. The central marker with with the faces. It, it reminds me of the uh, of the Beatles' Magical Mystery Tour album, with all the all the people kind of lumped together in a in a big lump. But I, when I saw that guy, your the predominant face off to the left. I didn't really. I thought, well, maybe that that little mustache, but maybe it's just the shadow. Doesn't it? it from, well, that's how you produce. Remember, this is fluid art. From the nose, but. My first guess of who it looked like to me was uh, 
was Nikola Tesla, although I'm not sure it really looks like Nikola Tesla, but that, that was my first impression. Well, here's why my mind said, good God, Hitler. Do you, <laughs> do you know when Surveyor 3 was launched by the NASA-controlled NASA, the, the Nazi-controlled NASA? Was that Hitler's birthday? Yes! <laughs> April 20th, 1967. Come on, boys and girls. How many dots align before you say you're pregnant? Mixing our metaphors, Natalie. And, and they built a little addition to the throne to add him to the pantheon because, of course, the same hero worship, you know, you know attaches to Hitler that attaches to certain other people. And isn't it weird that a current candidate for president is suddenly quoting Adolf Hitler references in his speeches? This oh, gets God. very interesting. It's weird. More than weird. <laughs> Remember, this guy also had a copy of Hitler's speeches on his night table by his bedside as attested to under pain of perjury in a court of law by one of his wives several years ago in a New York courtroom. I'm, I'm telling you, unless you are so far out that you're in, you will never put the big, big picture together at this crucial time in solar system history when Earth's procession brings the physics to another high point and impossible things that could not be pulled off before are now possible, like testing a hyperdimensional drive in full public view in Earth orbit in the next few days. That's pretty amazing. Or, I, or, or I have a copy of Mein Kampf somewhere. I don't have a night table. No, no, no. This wasn't so, Mein Kampf. But, it was his speeches. It wasn't Mein oh. Kampf. It was, remember, even if you hate the guy. Bill Clinton studied there, his speeches. Many people have studied his we're, speeches we're not, because he was so good at this. We're not, we're not talking yeah. about Bill Clinton. We're talking about Donald Trump. Donald Trump is mm. running for president. Donald Trump is the master orator. Do you know? That the Prime Minister of Germany, uh, why can't, well, why can't I think of her name right now? She just resigned. She said, Merkel? To, "No, Merkel, Angela Merkel." She said to no. Trump, "The only other guy that ever has pulled as many people for an audience as you have is Hitler." <laughs> and he <laughs> and he talked about it. It's quoted. It's on tape. He quoted it in mm -hmm. the latest book by John Carl, who is an ABC uh, correspondent who has written a brilliant book about, uh, uh, you know, uh, Tired of Winning, I think is the title, or something right. similar. The point mm -hmm. is, this is all being done right in front of us because they count on the fact we will not put the dots together, we will not figure out the plan, and we won't take action while we still have time to avert what's coming at us at Warp 9. And it's part of a very long-term plan if this model is correct. Oh, okay. A point to the side, Richard. When you uh, you're talking about that, you know, Zero. big plan. When you listen to um, our British Broadcasting Agency uh, about Elon Musk's um, spaceship when it went up and then it wasn't successful, or the Musk as it was, there's very much a tone of kind of like dumbing down in the newscaster's voice. Um, that don't go into the, no detail, nothing on the science. It's just you know news for the masses and and nothing else, and no no alternative uh, you know 
retort or, or comment on, on what was happening with his, uh, his craft. I think what he did was amazing. Of course, it's amazing. And it's going to be even more amazing in the next one. And believe me, based on the technology and the, the damage that didn't happen and all that, I am thinking he's going to pull off number three between now and the new year. And I, and I can't, I can't, I don't have a, 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 um, a symbolic ritual reason for that yet, but I will turn to Rick Levine and I will find one because I'm betting dollars to Navy beans. There is a secret reason why the third one has to be this year, not in 2024. And we will see. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Winter solstice. Uh, bingo. Yes, exactly. Because I know from my measurements that that's when the damn physics goes through the roof in a positive way. Things you can't pull off other times of the year, you can pull off when there is, in fact, an alignment with the black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy, which occurs on the solstice. And again, I have measured the weirdness in the physics with the Accutron on those dates. So this is not speculation. This is, okay, you've got a set of observations that shouldn't be happening. Now let's figure out why they're happening. And that's what's going on upstairs, even as we, even as we speak. Okay, we've got about uh, 20 minutes left. What have we not covered that we should cover before we, you know, uh, retire for the night? Hey, Richard? Yeah? This is Greg again. Um, I want to look at number three of mine, my item number three. Okay, let me bring up my Absolutely. thingy. Looking for number three. First of all, I have to find Greg. Okay, there's Greg. And there's number three. Yes, number three. Okay. This, this is kind of my approach to how I took the uh, the circle in the, in the picture from, from the uh, Indian space uh, research organization, I think it's called a rocket organization, whatever. Anyway, and Indian Space Research Organization. And I, 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 I ISRO. Picked, right. I picked the uh, just the, the objects surrounding the central, without any other of the objects except except the, the what I call the blob that was I guess you're calling the, 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 it's the, the time mausoleum. capsule. Well, see, see a, a sarcophagus or a mausoleum by definition is a time capsule. Okay. I mean, why why did uh, what's his name uh, Carnarvon keep searching for Tutankhamun's tomb? Because it was a time capsule. Okay. Everything yeah. there was part of the era of Tutankhamun and that kingdom. And it was a treasure of unimaginable importance. Imagine if they got, they mean the Egyptians, the model, the idea from their godlike progenitors who were maybe one of the folks or all the folks immortalized in this sarcophagus on the moon that is best seen when the earth rises behind it. Right. According to a program which should not exist and we should not trust. We shouldn't do it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay, anyway, I've labeled the center object as O, and then I went up north, and we we stipulated that the, the picture is oriented to the north. Well, we, don't, we don't have to stipulate. It's in the Chandrayaan data. Just go to okay. McGuire's website. He publishes the coordinates. He directly connects to the uh, ISRO site. It's obvious that north is in map definition on Earth is up. 
Okay. So, so yeah. So see, all parts of this logic chain can be documented. Okay. It's and then, so I started with A, went B, C, D, and around. I left out. Um, I got to J. I left out. I mean, I left out I. Because that's a that's a mathematical tradition to leave like I and usually leave out I and O, but so they're not confused with one and zero. Right. Anyway, then K, L, M, and back to A. And I just used the, just the original circuit, just the closest ones. But there are other objects out there that could be, you know, additional. Well, like 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 Maria's num item number one, because because mm -hmm. what you do is you when you do these alignment circles, you then do cross alignments so that you zero in on the exact time frame. Mm -hmm. The cross alignments narrow down the possibilities. No. Off to the, off to the. Oh, and then I made this green circle, which is, which is a, you know, it's a, a quote unquote perfect circle, and so it's the same width as its height. And then I tried to set it in to approximate, you know, as as people do on graphs or whatever to. Sure. You know, uh, I forget what to call it, extrapolate or get to show that that's pretty much a circle. Anyway, um. No, by, by, by the way, do you know that no, this, this region, uh, hang on, Ron, this yeah. region that we're looking at in the tip of the surveyor crater on the north you know, point has the most collection of white blobs of any other area on this landscape, hmm. which, of course, is because it's not accidental. It's design. All the other alignments are part of the bigger matrix of why this was built here. Okay. Now, I'd, off to the off to the right from L. L is uh, L is 270 is to the, is due west. But there's a there's a big white and then with a big shadow and then north of that is another. Um, I, I drew a line the other day to look at those and they that comes up to about seven degrees of uh, to the east of north. Okay. And and in the and in the year wait a minute seven seven you mean you mean east of uh, south of east mm. are we talking l o e no no i'm just i'm just talking about these two these off to the pastel outside to the left yeah there's a bigger guy there and you can see a big shadow too yeah, and then right. and then go up from that there's another big guy exactly. with a big shadow that appears to be double see the shadow how it Kind of like uh -huh. in two peaks. So I put and and see we, we can't really see. <clears throat> excuse me. In the other pictures, how you know and what they really look like or anything. So we just have to go by what we got here. But I drew a line between those two big white objects there, and it you know runs north and south, but it's tilted a little bit, seven mm -hmm. degrees. Mm -hmm. Well. And when I go back to the when I go back in the time machine to a hundred thousand years ago, there's a there's a time where the Earth I mean the, yeah the Earth where the Earth sets at seven degrees from north. Oh my God! And we're told so, this program cannot be. See, this is their disclaimer. So when individuals find these weird things out, yeah, they will assume NASA knows. NASA's God. NASA tells me not to worry about this. I'm going to bed tonight and will not worry about it. I will not worry about it. I will not worry about it. And they won't. 
<laughs> we won't. <laughs> and, and if you go, if you go in the stellarium and you look, you well, go to hang a on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Look at look at G. Then look at zero. Then look at the big oh. guy up on the other side of, the, of your ring. That's a minus. That's like a minus seven degrees. Eyeballing. It, it, well, yeah, it might be a little bit more than that, but it's hard, hard to say. Well, we should from, find out what it is from here. You know. And then there's a there's a there's there's one up. Uh, I think I don't know. There was one that I sh- I came across that I was gonna. I, I relabeled the blob. I called it T now. Thank for you. Tomb. Thank you. <laughs> and then. I've got one that's that's up from zero from O. It's twenty-seven degrees to the east. Right. And and um, so I'm going to label it V because that's where Vega rises. And whoa, and wait, 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 wait. You know what else? Polaris. You know what else came out of Vega? Oh, I forgot. Amua, Amua. Enters oh, the right. solar system from the direction of Lyra and the brilliant star in Lyra called Vega. And there is a friend of mine in Britain. I forget his name at the moment. He's written zumpting books. He basically has a whole mythological background to focus on that region of the sky, Lyra and Cygnus, as, <clears throat> as places where an ET civilization may hang out as uh-huh. part of his research. Well, Carl Sagan said that area was too new. What is that? Oh, don't news. you remember in the movie Contact, they said, oh, this is coming from Vega, and they said, no, 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 Vega's too young a star, couldn't possibly have a civilization, blah, 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 blah. Because the model was you had to be looking at stars where people were stay-at-homes and they, never, they were and never traveled. Why could they never travel? Because they didn't know how to crack the light barrier. Why? Because exceeding the speed of light in three dimensions is impossible. In other words, when you're dealing with cooked books and cooked physics, you can create any mythology you want and back it up with fakery, which is what they've been doing, which will be tested in Earth orbit. I can't emphasize this enough. This is all going to be tested in a matter of days. So I want everybody out there, go follow my lead on the other side of midnight. My news items tonight, number two. Is it number two or is it number three? I forget. Hang on. Let me go look. Don't want to give people the wrong information. It is number number three. All right? Follow that lead. If you don't see results in the next few days or weeks, start making noise. Start inundating the company with emails. Start talking to reporters. Tell them why this is important. How? What I find interesting in the, in the, in the story which is in Forbes, which you can't get more creme de la creme in the business world than Forbes, right? They have good space news. It's you crazy. Know, they really do. Well, yeah. because people can make money in space. Anyway, yeah. anyway, they keep saying over and over again in the mouths of the experimenters and in the McCulloch guy who was hired by DARPA to do the study, etc., that, well, even if these guys get a positive result, no one is going to believe them. And they reiterate it several times in the article. It's like they're programming everybody, not believe your lion eyes, believe your lion NASA. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. 
Yeah. It's nuts. We are living in a time of total nutso because the physics is coming to an end of the cycle and at the ends of the cycle and intermediate periods in between, you have what I call the turbulence of the noise. And we're in a turbulent, noisy background time where the most improbable things are going to be discovered to be... Richard, do you know what that uh, number three looks like? The, the photographs of the quantum space drive? Okay. Uh, just for a bit of fun. Do you remember in a Star Trek movie when they, uh, when the scientists first makes the uh, jump to hyperspace? Is that, it, it creates an engine. Right. Yeah. It kind of like made it in his own backyard. It kind of re- reminds me of the, in a way, at least artistically, of the, the shape and the style of what oh, he was trying Stargate. to do. Oh, it's a Stargate. Yeah, it's a Stargate. Not, not Stargate. It was Star Trek. Oh, and Star Trek. Oh, you're talking about Cochrane, I guess. Um, the, the guy yeah, who, who was Richard the Star Trek authority, but Cochrane was the scientist that supposedly developed the uh, warp drive. That's the one important thing. Yeah, he was in yeah. the series, the original series, and then he was in the, and in the one of the movies played by oh, a brilliant actor who loved his old raccoon coat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they had that same guy uh, reprise that role in several episodes of Enterprise, for that matter. Yeah. So, yeah, that guy. Anyway, ultimately in physics, it's only results that count. I thought it was interesting that this article in Forbes keeps saying, but if we get positive results, no one's going to believe anybody, which is nuts. Hmm. Of course they will. No, I know. Do you know how I know a bunch of people would say that it with a startup that does uh, CubeSats that are, are they're they're waiting with bated breath. So there's um, well, here's how you prove it. All right, hint, guys, if you're listening to us tonight, since I advertised you were gonna, you know, be part of the show. If Barry one gives you a positive result, you design Barry two right away. You put a camera in it, and you send it to the moon. <laughs> they can't say yeah. it's not around the moon if you keep showing pictures of craters out the window. This is trivial to prove. But it's so interesting yeah. how the media slant from Forbes is basically don't believe your lion eyes. Even if it works, it's explainable as something trivial. Nothing to see here. Move along. These aren't the droids you're looking for. <laughs> Hey, Richard? Yes. <laughs> okay. Speaking of, speaking of magazines and that, I, one of my, my item number nine is uh, yes, there was a magazine called uh, Town and Country, and there's this article about McMansions on the Moon. It was sometime this spring, I think it was. And I was at the doctor's office, and I was waiting, you know, in the waiting room, and I came across it, took a picture of it. But it shows uh, Branson and Musk and, and Bezos. Uh, conversing off the balcony of their McMansion on the moon. And this story is basically the, it's a, it's an article about uh, design and architecture companies that are working on real projects for, you know, to build things on the moon. Well, of course they are. Yeah. And this is in, you know, a, a magazine that's for people that are into home design and whatever. And, Travel. Look, if, if this works the way I would architect it, and who says that I have any, any control, and we're getting very close to the top of the show here, 
But if yeah. I were to design it, I would make must the guy that ferries everything up from Earth's surface to Earth orbit, because these drives cannot be used in the current state of physics in the solar system to give you real anti-gravity going from Earth to or Earth orbit. You need right. a cheap, reusable chemical system that can take like a hundred people at a time. Once you get into orbit, you rendezvous with your real spacecraft, which uses the quantum drive or the Byfield Brown drive or the one I've got in my safety deposit box, which was, well, I, I have one. I'm just waiting for the right time to have it tested. Any of these work because they're working on basically the same equations. Even though the inventors think they're doing something different, they're all basically doing the same thing. And it's just different switches that you're throwing. Once that is proven, you basically board an interplanetary liner like the Queen Elizabeth or the QE2 or the SS United States, and you go from low Earth orbit in very fancy first class, you know, cabins to lunar orbit. A starship takes you from Earth to Earth orbit. Another starship takes you from lunar orbit down to the surface, and you basically develop cities and other extraordinary evidences of our 21st century technology on the moon, courtesy of marrying these two technologies together. Right. Sounds good to me. And that's what's at stake, <laughs> folks, which is why we can't let Musk be lied. By the way, I think Musk is coming out as an anti-Semite now to completely destroy public credibility so all the good stuff goes secret. Because nobody will give a damn. Nobody mm. will write about him if he's an anti-Semite. Right. It's a four-dimensional four chess. Mm. Remember, Elon Musk is mentioned in and the Elon is the president of Mars, Mars. of a colony. Right, he's, yeah. He's the leader, the chief executive, the Elon. Again, is all this just accidental? Of course not. <laughs> okay, we're basically out of time. Uh, anybody have some? No, actually, we don't have time. Don't have time. All right, super. I want to thank everybody tonight, my guests who have done yeoman service and have brought extraordinary new wonders, Greg in particular, and Maria, and Ron was his usual enlightened curmudgeon self. Ruggiero does incredible art and has an incredible eye. And there's no doubt in our group that we're looking at something artificial. The name of the game is what does it mean? So stay tuned. Now, tomorrow night, we're visiting Mars again. And I'll just tell you, we will have some guests we have not had on the other side of midnight for years. So come in and stay tuned. Till tomorrow night. Third star on the left, straight on till morning, and it even works on the moon. Hi, everyone.